All right. This is the Conversation Cannabis and Christianity podcast. My name is Miguel Torres and I'm your host. Our special guest today is Diane Vallum, who happens to be a justice of the peace in Ontario, Canada. She served on the bench since 2002, excuse me. And in 2015, she entered Canada's long-term disability program due to a motor vehicle accident. However, on July 1st of this year, 2021, Diane was cleared to return to the bench and she credits and gives thanks to God and cannabis for her recovery. Now I've looked at Diane's resume and it is extensive and I don't want to go over all of it because I think you'll enjoy hearing more of it from her. So from Ontario, Canada, Diane Ballum, Justice of the Peace. How are you doing today? I'm just fine, Miguel. Thank you. Great, great. So interesting, very interesting. What what made you want to go into law? Um, I had a community college diploma in social services. I'd always been interested in human rights and justice issues. And my mom had worked in social services. Um, so I completed a, a two-year college program in that and began working and uh, eventually ended up, uh, actually, I was working for the John Howard Society. I believe you have that in the U.S. as well. And, but just on a contract on to develop a employment program for people that had been in jail and needed to get employment or to get people out of the, um, that were just starting with minor crimes, but you could see they were headed on a path that if something didn't intervene, they were gonna end up in a worse situation. And, um, you know, fruitful employment is one of the best things to deter that. So um, I was working in it and dealing field. We also did a lot of crime prevention, but um, out of that, I actually developed a whole branch in the town that I was in because I thought the one program we needed, I was actually providing more services, just not getting uh, paid or getting any funding for it. So oh. I was moved to, uh, uh, and I didn't know that this had never been done before, but apparently it hadn't. So I had developed a group of people in the community that I thought were, you know, sort of, they would give credibility and they had some power and influence when it came to us getting a, funding and put all this stuff together and I ended up running I think it was four or five programs and then um, John Howard Society of Ontario uh, which was our overriding body found out I was doing this they didn't know that I had uh, got all these things and so that I was going for branch status I had to go to Toronto and and make a presentation in front of this big room full of uh, top executive like from Shell Canada and all these big companies and uh, the only thing well two things were funny on that one fellow who obviously this was quite a number of years ago too and that we're talking way and I was young I think I was oh my gosh 20 or something 19 or 20 and uh, I he said to me he said something to me and then he so wait, wait, you're me, at the you're, age of 19 or 20 you're you're giving a brief or a presentation to oil and energy execs yeah, and business, and um, they're sitting around this table because they were the, the governing board and uh, um, telling them why we should be a chapter. Um, at that time, there was no rural chapter of John Howard in Ontario. They were only located in large cities. And um, so I was saying something, and this man says to me, he called me dear, and then he stopped and he goes, um, sort of with 
you know, I don't think it was totally sincere. He goes, oh, I hope you don't mind me calling you dear. And I replied, it doesn't bother me, dear, if it doesn't bother you. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Then we, But there was so many few things. There's a number of people around the table that chuckled, found that pretty, uh, I thought, and it just came out. And again, that's God. That has to be God because, you know, you, usually you think of these things after the fact, but to be able to come with it right at the second is hard. And the bottom line of what I told them was, I said, you know, I appreciate that you're here. They were saying, well, what about funding and what about this and what about that? And I said, look, at, we're from Victoria County and we do things in the black here. We're operating in the black. We haven't asked you for any money this far. And I doubt very much we'll be asking you for money at any point. We might be the only branch that you have that can say that. And so I said, just so you know, we are here. We are a force in the community. We're going to be here as something. I would prefer us to be here as a John Howard Society. But if you choose, you don't want us, that's fine. We'll be something else, but we will be here regardless. And uh, so at the end of the day, they decided that, yes, we, we were uh, accepted in as a branch in our own right, and we, we carried on. So as my work developed there, um, I found it really frustrating. I would work with individuals, and so many of them were you know, very troubled people that had had really difficult lives. Very few of them had a support system. Not all, some did, but for the most part, they didn't. And um, I could do a certain amount with them, but then I was trusting it to lawyers to, you know, be aware and make the right submissions and things. And that wasn't happening. And I was getting really frustrated and and uh, angry about it actually. And I thought, you know, I need to spend the rest of my life being frustrated and angry or I can do something about this. At the time I'd been taking night classes at the University in Peterborough. I would work, uh, it was twice a week, I guess. And then you'd drive, it was about an hour's drive there and back. So it, it wasn't, but anyway, then someone told me that I could write the LSAT test, which is a North American or perhaps worldwide, I'm not sure, test too, that anybody applying to law school has to write and you have to get a certain score on it before. And that's what the law schools look at when they're deciding if they're going to take you. So um, the, because uh, at that point, all I had was my college, my tier community college. But anyway, I uh, found out where it was. I really knew nothing about Yelstad either. And again, this is God brought me through this. He's brought me through. He takes, well, there's the old saying, if God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. And it's a good thing because um, honestly, I knew nothing about this. I did not come from a legal background. Uh, my people were farmers. We had very humble, you know, roots. And, and you say um, your people, are you talking your, about your parents and generations my, before? My family and uh, we had a big extended family around us. We were like the old farm people where, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and um, all those things connected. And uh and the whole community that we lived in was just a farming community, sort of kind of remote in those days, no internet, of course, at that time. So you're more isolated, but yeah. um, went down to Toronto to write this LSAT test, which I found out afterwards, people take courses so that they can improve their score. In my naivety, I didn't even know there was such a thing. So they had said this little 15 minute sort of, you know, see if you can do this thing. And I did, and it's like, that. oh, well, that's okay got down there well I'm going to tell you and it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done it's multiple choice you were timed you had to put your fingerprints I guess there's such a business that people would hire people to go and write the LSAT for them so you had to fingerprint your your paper so they could then check it against you and know it was you yeah. and while 
we were doing this, unbeknownst to me, a tornado hit Toronto where we were, but all the windows are closed, the blinds are down um, because they don't want anybody to be able to signal you or do anything in any way. So we walk out the door. Oh, and I remember too getting there, there's people dressed in um, like designer suits and with Gucci briefcases. And I had thought about this being a practical farm person. I thought I'm going to have to be comfortable because I think it was I think it was four hours. It's quite, it's quite long. It's uh, pretty intensive. And uh, so I had sweatpants and a sweatshirt and, and my sneakers that I'd taken a peanut butter sandwich and some apple juice. I remember like I said, okay, that'd be good for the protein. The apple juice would give me a little shot of sugar. Anyway, and I've looked at these other people thinking, oh my God, either I'm grossly underdressed or they're grossly overdressed. But, <laughs> but I was right. The big thing was to just be comfortable so you could focus on what was in front of you. And um, so I must have done all right out of that, but I come out and I'm looking around going, oh my God, literally like this is like there were trees down there and I could barely remember where I'd parked my vehicle because you're that, you're just mentally drained. And, um, then got, I was staying with my one sister. She was staying in uh, Scarborough at that time. And I got to her building, got to the floor. And then if my life depended on it, I could not remember what door she lived in. <laughs> so I was like banging up and down the halls because I was actually getting unsteady at that point. And she came out and goes, what, is there something wrong with you? And I said, yes, there is. Bonnie, get me in quickly. But anyway, that's really, got it. Uh, did a high enough score that I got offered um, positions in different of the law schools, chose Queens because I had a obviously an interest in criminal justice and prisons and so, Queens in Canada. Uh, so in hey, Diane, Diane. So you, yep. you, you took it one time, you didn't do the prep tests and you were getting offers from schools saying, we want you to come to our school. I got offered a scholarship at one. And um, a lot of that was due to my background and some of that, but all of that had to be God too, because what were the chances? Like there's the woman that knows nothing about nothing and just on a, Again, it just became one of those things. I got this urge that I had to do, and I thought, well, I'll do it. And if I'm, if I, I always say everything is God's will. I said, if I score high enough in the test, then it's His will. If I don't, then I meant to do something else. So, but it obviously was. So, yeah, it was kind of astounding. And um, I learned all this other stuff afterwards, which is just as well, because I might have felt intimidated otherwise, but ignorance was bliss. And um, <laughs> So I uh, rolled through and went to Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and I picked Queen's because it is the highest concentration of federal prisons anywhere in the world. Um, it no has, kidding. Uh, oh, wait, wait. Yeah. In Canada, that Queen's, is that, that's a city in, in or a, a... a big city right at the American border. And we used to get a lot of Americans coming over. A lot of the servicemen would come from Fort Drum, which is just across the border. And um, they... Uh, yeah, well-known, old, uh, established uh, university, but because at one time it had been a military town, so yes, sir, but there are nine federal penitentiaries all within a short uh, perimeter of Kingston, Ontario. Huh. Um, I don't know if that just happened by accident or <laughs> but anyway, so... When I was there, so I, uh, because money was an issue, I was doing what's called a work bursary. So I did it with the John Howard there, and I would go one day a week or one night a week, actually, and uh, go to the worst prisons, the ones that they had trouble getting people to go to because they, to get volunteers. I had to get volunteers that would go anyway, but for yeah. the worst ones, the most serious ones, um, nobody wanted to go. And, but I thought those are probably the ones that need it, need help the most. So, yeah. um, 
I was going to Millhaven Penitentiary first, which at that time was the most secure prison in Canada. Um, it's not now. They've built some other super ones, they call, that are in Quebec, I believe, in New Brunswick. But um, then the next year they asked me, I went to the Kingston Penitentiary. It's now been closed. It was one of the oldest and most nefarious um, had the least amount of services and an interesting thing was happening. People that had been uh, sentenced to death, um, when Canada abolished the death sentence, which was uh, one of the reasons I was inspired to go to law school too was because I um, uh, felt that was just wrong. But anyway, they, these were people that, but for us abolishing the death penalty would have been executed. So they had now served 25 years of their life, which is a huge, you know, it's a long time. People say that's nothing. Trust me, it is. It changes mm -hmm. you irrevocably. And um, they were then going to be released and they were terrified. And so was, I think, the prison system and the government because nobody knew this was really sort of an experiment. The very first people that would have been executed, but instead they're going to be released to society because they had to once they'd served 25 years. So our, our job or what I volunteered for there too, I did a life skills uh, course to teach them some basic skills when they came out to just so that they didn't get overwhelmed in the first two or three days or week. And um, that was really actually quite hilarious. It was so funny because some of the things that like we'd set up scenarios and um like i'd say okay because you know the first thing they want to do when they come out is to meet women you know you have to be realistic they've been locked up it's been 25 years they want to go out and meet people but there's a whole culture in prison you can't make eye contact unless you know the person extremely well you don't there are a number of things that people wouldn't wouldn't know and, and they'd been in so long they didn't they had forgot what was normal um so i'd say okay i'm in a bar you're going to come up you want to meet me so you know come up and some of the things that they would say oh my goodness because mostly their contact with the outside was watching soap operas yeah and that's what they thought television oh letters and, um, i'd imagine television letters at that time and then well they hardly even got letters because uh they said you know when you're doing a life sentence that your family your friends your loved one they might come the first year they might come the first two or three years and then they stopped because they, it's so far, it really was remote from anywhere in Canada. And um, they just know it's going to be 25 years. Some of them would be dead. Like, so very few of them even had prisoners, or sorry, had visitors from the outside because of that. So that to me made it all the more important to, you know, and they really, really looked forward to our visits on um, uh, once a week. It was uh it was really touching actually and um yeah so just anyway finished my law degree developed even further interest in working in in the justice system uh came out i opened my own law practice because um the firm that i articled at didn't want me to be defending people well the one partner there was the federal prosecutor federal drug prosecutor okay. so they didn't want me to take any drug cases and also he was the mayor so they didn't want me taking any you know, politically sensitive cases. So I said, as much as I loved them and I enjoyed them, but I had to decline because I said, you know, if I find a case in it and I feel that person needs representation, I'm going to represent them. And um, that's just the way it is. So we're better. I'll just, so I did, I started my own, which was, I wouldn't recommend for people coming right out to necessarily start their own practice right off the bat. It was a lot of work. It was uh 
a lot of things that you learn, but it's sink or swim time. So, uh, but it worked out um, uh, pretty well. I went in with another lawyer uh, just to, uh, he had extra room. And so I said, the deal was he was supplying space and, and all the secretarial backup. And I was giving him 50% of my gross earnings, which was quite hefty, but yeah. I was satisfied yeah. with that to let it go. But uh, I digress from what he turned out became a thief maybe he'd been a thief for a while I don't know stole uh, I started feeling things weren't right there and um, I left and had my own office and then um, he stole millions of dollars as long as I one of them happened to be from a client of mine um, I had to report him to the Law Society of Upper Canada and then I had to go and testify and do a number of things and uh he ended up being disbarred getting seven years in prison and and uh that that was another thing that most people don't expect to have to deal with when in their first year of the call to the bar but anyway yeah. um moved on from that and the practice grew um pretty rapidly i was the only female in four counties that was doing defense work they uh they were all male so very uh sexist some weren't but there were a few that were obviously really threatened because my main practice was in criminal law. Um, I did a big real estate, uh, too, but my heart really was in doing the criminal law. And um, so, you know, met a lot of people, did a lot of stuff. And, but uh, let's see then. So while I was doing the criminal law and the practice was very healthy and uh, it actually, I was having to turn away a lot of business, but, um, again, while I was doing that, then I got a call from, I was involved in some pretty controversial cases and I didn't back down, but again, it was because I knew that God had my back and otherwise, you know, you just couldn't do the stuff I did because you wouldn't have the, the guts. And, um, so I thought, well, I got big guy on my side, so, you know, we'll just, we'll do what's right. And I remember asking my father one time, who was still alive, then he since passed away from cancer, but I said, uh -huh. dad, you know, how uh, all these things come up. And some of them, I said, it's not like people tell you where it's black and white. There's a lot of shades of gray here. And yeah. how do you know that you're doing the right thing? And he said, well, he thought about it for a minute. He said, Dan, the biggest thing is at night, you got to be able to look yourself in the face and say, I did the right thing today. And he said, and if you didn't, then tomorrow you got to try to make it right. And I thought that's been some of the best advice that um, anyone could give you. And that's kind of my asset test. You know, if I, when I'm going to go to bed tonight, am I going to look at myself in the mirror with a clear conscience? And uh, if not, then I hadn't better be doing whatever it is I'm thinking of doing here. So, um, or not doing so. Uh, yeah, I went into law, did all that. And uh, then while I was practicing, I got a call from the Ontario government, uh, one of the cabinet ministers and asked me if I would take a position on um, with, the, we. I think you have it too, work, a workers' compensation system. I'm pretty sure, I'm sure Florida has that as well. Um, ours is because it's province-wide up here, it's not federal. So I was to go on the, I took a, I agreed to accept a seat on the um, appeals tribunal. We hear all the final appeals and our decisions, uh, we're in a panel. And then later they also did some uh, sole adjudication. I would sit, so I was appointed as a full-time vice chair 
one of only 10 full-time people in the province of Ontario. And we traveled all of Ontario. So vast areas, we'd be anywhere from up north, um, you know, Thunder Bay in those areas down to Thunder Windsor. Bay. I'm familiar with Thunder Bay. I was there. You are. <laughs> I, am. I love that city. And they got the most interesting people up there. Don't they I have not? I so here's what so I've never been. To, so it's Thunder Bay is on the Canadian side, right? Yep. So I, I was stationed at the, in the Keweenaw Peninsula, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So it's a, a peninsula on a peninsula, right? Uh, and uh, we did, I got there in the fall and I was there through the, until spring. So we did, um, we had to do some stuff out in Lake Superior. And Thunder Bay oh. was, was one of those areas that we had to be familiar with for uh, area of familiarization. You know what I mean? Yep. The whole, the whole, uh, we had to. Because it's a border city kind of, yeah. And yeah. same with Sault Ste. Marie. We're probably in Sault Ste. Marie too. It's on the border. Like there's, there's the American Sault Ste. Marie and there's also Canadian Sault Ste. Yep. Marie. Yeah. So we were there as well. And that was funny when I came back from, well, I digress a bit, but I ended up, so I took the position as the vice chair. Um, I was the first and only farm person because I'm from a farm and I, and I farm. I, I'm, I don't just, you know, say, oh, I'm a farm person. Um, and uh so I would be more sympathetic uh, to um, the people because I knew, well, first of all, I knew if they're lying people, but secondly, I also knew if somebody's telling the truth because I'd say, no, that is correct, you know, because, uh, and um, the, uh, anyway, carried on. And while I was there at the um, appeals tribunal and it was hard because I didn't know about, I knew a little bit about workers' compensation. I knew it was a mess. And so it was a person acting directly from the premier. I let my ego really, um, you know, go in. They said they would really appreciate it if I would win because they agreed it was a mess. It needed to be cleaned up. And uh, so, and they would appreciate it if I was help them. So I said, sure, I always up for a challenge. So off I went there, which again was a real change from what I'd been doing. And um, while I was there, said made a number of changes one of the things was they would only hold hearings in toronto well for a lot of people going from a rural area <clears throat> into toronto which is the largest city would just be so daunting for them that they would give up their case because rather they they just did first of all a lot of them didn't have a way to get there they didn't have a car that was good enough to make the drive they they wouldn't be able to have the money to do it so one of the things I'm really proud of is that they then started to hold hearings in smaller communities. Um, Cause I said, you know, it's far simpler for you to send three people to a community than it is to send some poor person and all their witnesses and, you know, whoever, all these people make them come to Toronto um, within a certain radius that makes sense, but outside that it doesn't. It's, it's so that to this day, I believe is still the case that you can arrange to have them set up a lot closer to your home. And uh, while I was working there is when that was my dad, who had been ill with, he, he'd had prostate cancer. He had went into remission, but unfortunately uh, ten, 10 years later, that came back and I had made arrangements to take him to uh, Belfast for his 65th birthday. Belfast, and, Ireland, you're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. Belfast, Ireland. Oh, I always forget there's a Belfast estate. Um, but there's, some, there, there's Belfast. I think I've, I've seen like Belfast in almost every state in the U.S. <laughs> I think so. Just, boy, those people spread around and they're proud. So, um, anyway, and you wouldn't know it by sadly, looking at me, Diane, but I am part Irish on my mom's side. 
good man good man there you go that's why you're such a nice person um so um unfortunately dad i my uh, appendix exploded and i was in the hospital i lived while you were while you were in belfast or before you went to no belfast? just before we were going to go okay. and so um, my dad, right at that same time as I remember, I was in my hospital bed, and they had me hooked up to all these different things. So, came in and and said that the uh, you know he's feeling really bad, and the cancer apparently had come back, and and that he didn't think he's going to be able to go on the trip. And long story short, he ended up canceling and and uh, and died October twenty fifth, nineteen ninety nine. So, oh. I was drained. I had spent oh. uh, time and and that in itself, Michael or Miguel, I'm going to digress a bit. That really deepened my faith. Some people say it weakens your faith, but my dad, he, he, I would think he's more of an agnostic and it was because the way he was brought up, they were never taken to church or to Sunday school or any of those things. My mom is the one that really instilled that in us. But when he was dying, he, he came to know the Lord and the, and then, a miracle uh, truly happened one day he was very close to the end and he would go into comas um that um and you couldn't wake him like he would he would be so out of it and then but he would come back out of it and and this would happen pretty frequently so one night i just me and him there and um or he and i be correct english um <laughs> and i said you know dad you're taking the, you're, you're doing these things. I said, I think when that happens, and I don't, again, this had to be God that, because I hadn't thought of this really myself. I said, I, I think you're taking trips when that, like, I didn't mean, you know, loosen it. I meant like that his spirit was going, traveling, doing stuff. And he said, you're right. And I said, um, really? And I said, uh, how? And he goes, well, the angel takes me. And I said, really? And I said, what, what, where do you go? What do you see? And he said, Diane, it's this most beautiful meadow uh, field. And he said, they're all there. And I said, hey, you mean all dad? And he said, you know, as he named his mother, his father, some of his brothers that had passed away. And, and I said, and he said, the angel takes you. And he goes, yeah. He said, he's right there. Can't you see him? And he pointed to the corner just by his bedside. And, and he obviously could see. And I said, I can't see dad, but it's only because God hasn't opened my eyes to this yet, but I don't doubt for a minute that there is in fact an angel there that's here. And I said, and dad said, well, it was just wonderful. And I said, dad, that God sent the angel to show you don't have to be afraid. And also to show you that he exists. He says, this isn't something that people make up. And he said, he showed you all the people are there so that you know, you're going to be welcomed, you know, there's a place for you where you feel at home. And, and I get a shiver, just tell you the story. It, it's amazing. It was like a, it's amazing. Peace over yeah. me. a peace came over my dad and cause he'd been really in turmoil and, and tossing and turning and, um, and, uh, like that to me, that was just such a gift for, for me to, to have that experience. And, um, uh, would definitely strengthen anybody's uh, faith and it also made me um, not be a, a proponent of assisted suicide because it made me realize that you will die there's a reason for everything that God you know when you're when God's ready for you to die you'll die if you shorten that you're 
interfering with his plan now. And I also say there's no need for anyone to be suffering. Absolutely no need. And if that's happening, that's a medical failure because I know enough medical uh, background. I did medical legal law at the tribunal that there's no need of that. There's there, That's absolutely bad medicine if they're doing that for anyone to be suffering. And um, anyway, my dad passed. And when he passed, uh, in the meantime, the friend that was supposed to come with us to Ireland came back, brought a friend from there, said, uh, and the friend said, oh, I understand you're, you were going to go to um, Belfast or want to. And I said, I don't want to. I'm going to go there. And so he invited me to come over. He said he had just ranting but anyway it all worked out i ended up i went over and he happened to live in the most tumultuous uh area of belfast right off the falls road and i didn't know that so i looked in again it was learned quick but again i believe you get sent where you're meant to be you meet the people you're meant to be you just have to make yourself open to you know doing these crazy things and uh gave up my job and i was gonna quit the job at the uh tribunal head came to me and said Diane did we do something wrong as he had offered me another three-year appointment which people give their arms for and I had to say to him I'm sorry but I can't I can't accept that I didn't say anything more because I hadn't received the full uh, acceptance yet at Queen's and uh, later on he, he said to me well even if you're accepted he said I want you to stay on we'll give you a leave of absence and again this had to be God at work because that just doesn't happen. I mean, they, there's so many people vying for these jobs. They're very sought after. They're an appointment. They're not, you know, you don't just apply. It's like you're appointed by the premier of the province. So, Hey, um, Diane, I got a question. I got a question. Yeah. I'm not sure if this question has any bearing at all, but I'm just curious. Were you the only woman? You said you were, was this the same office that you were the only woman at? No, that was when I was in court um, for four. For the four counties, counties which right? Which are big, uh, I was the only criminal defense. Uh, no, there was other women at the tribunal. It was very fair. It was very, oh, a very right good on. place to learn. And that was the one where I traveled through the province, all over the province. And you met people from all the different works of life, um, different jobs, uh, very interesting. And you met some shysters, but mostly I met people who were just so down and out and broken and Again, it's not that I don't believe it was me personally. I'm just the vessel. But God sends me, you know, he would have me assigned because there were a lot of us. There were a lot of part-time people doing this as well, but all over the province. And there were some that I just felt that God had picked me to go to deal with these people because they needed help. And they, they the one in Thunder Bay was a longshoreman who had been denied he he absolutely was injured and the board had denied him to the point where the other sailors were throwing food off of uh, the um, boat and uh, so that he could eat like they'd throw a sack of red beans or you know whatever just to keep him alive I thought god help us you know we haven't this is Canada we don't shouldn't treat people like that so at the end I commended him and said that he had um, achieved this thing and had done so well because of his own efforts it, it, that the board, not only didn't they help him, they had done everything to harm him and that he deserved such credit for having the fortitude and for sticking with it. And, 
And this big guy, and he was the size of a grizzly bear, they had to think it up and come over and put me in a bear hug. And I'm down at chest level, like he's about two feet taller than me. And, and, and he was almost, he was crying actually and saying, you know, thank you. Thank you for believing in me. Cause they, they've not only dealing with pain, but they, they've got this terrible, you know, made to feel like they're lying and they're not, you know, it just be terrible. So, yeah. So, but then um, while I was doing this job was, my mom passed away very shortly after my dad. I think it was a year um, after my dad, or a little over a year. And um, so I had I was booked for surgery on my feet. I had uh, bunions, so it was when I was home and uh, oh, recovering from that. Oh, <laughs> and you know, you're in the cold, and they hurt even more when they get cold. <laughs> oh, they, it got and so and you're expected to go with those jobs to dress up and wearing high heels was daily torture. I thought, oh god, there's nothing the Chinese could do to me that could be worse than this. But anyway, um, the uh, so while I was recovering and and I used to joke that it was only because I was on uh, very intoxicating drugs that the um, the attorney general for the province of Ontario called me and asked me um, if I would uh, accept a position as a justice of the peace and um i told him i had to think about it which was true and then later i'm told that this is not normal that people jump at these positions too but i had a good position and i was happy in it and um, but the only thing was i said to him later he called back i said i would only do it if i was assigned locally because i knew there was a lot of injustice a lot of things going on that should not go on but the whole legal community seemed to be involved in it so and again in hindsight i should have thought geez dan do you really want to jump into this viper's nest but uh again i think it was a, had to be done that I mean, too yeah so he plucked me out and put me in there and and uh i must say it's been a bit of a battle from the beginning that could be another day's story because the justice system it shouldn't be called a legal system i think it's lost the right to be called a justice system I firmly believe that, and I don't say it lightly. I, I feel very sad about that, but law should not be a business and law has become a business. And to me, then we aren't dealing with justice, we're dealing with, with law. So two very different matters. Um, and uh, anyway, so, but in while I was, there's a just the piece, I was involved in two serious motor vehicle accidents. One was uh, motor, I was on my motorcycle, which I had just got because uh, at the time it seemed like a good idea. Um, not a giant thing, but I was on my first maiden run. My friends that had convinced me I should do this. And it, I actually was just looking for a way to be able to get away and, and not have people calling and stuff all the time. So we we're uh, going down. It was a fluke accident. But anyway, um, apparently... Uh, just a bee hit me on the lip my head went back my hand came off the throttle um i could feel the bike going into a wobble i was going around a big curve and there was a car right on my back uh wheel and i thought if i the normal thing would be to lay the motorcycle down but i thought if i lay this down and if i a don't do it right or if this guy doesn't hit his brakes yeah. right i'm dead because he's going to come right over top of me so i thought I better ride this out. And I knew from some horrific cases I'd worked on that the more I could slow that motorcycle down, the greater my chance of living was going to be. Hmm. So again, they told me later that I laid a track of rubber across the road, right across the road. And they said that was hard to do and keep the bike upright. Um, but 
when I hit the ditch um, and I was trying to, and you've all got just seconds, like it's all happening so quickly. But um, I can remember bouncing a couple of times. They tell me that I bounced, it was either three or four times. They were all convinced I was dead and they went up and much to their surprise, I wasn't dead. But um, I had broken my shoulder in four places and broke oh. my the arm was completely severed, the bone and oh. um, other parts. Uh, like the arm wasn't severed, the skin was there, but the bone was completely fractured. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, they, um, anyway, a bunch of other stuff. So that, um, and when I was recovering, I remember at first hospital was terrible. Uh, second, when I got moved through my work, they pulled some strings and got me into an excellent hospital in Toronto. And um, they were asking me all sorts of kind of funny questions like, well, do you remember the accident? What did you do? And what was this? And I finally said, why are you asking me this? And they said, well, by right, Diane, you should be dead. And um, there's very few people that could survive an accident this and, and just have as few. And I thought I had a lot of injury. But anyway, they, so I said to them, well, there was two main things that saved me. One was God. Second, I said, that's the biggest by far reason. The second one was that I ride horses. So I knew when the bike, I can remember that when I hit and it knocked the wind out of me and knowing enough to push away from the bike because with a horse, you push away so the horse doesn't fall on top of you. And, uh, and that's why my left shoulder and left arm, and that's how I got the worst of it because my I'm right-handed, so I'm stronger uh -huh. on the right side. But um, but I still believe that was God as well. wasn't ready for me to go, so I survived. Uh, it took a long time, and um, it, this was it in two thousand. Was this the accident in two thousand fifteen? No, this was no, before this that was, accident. Yeah, the, just Ooh. before it was um, maybe. Well, about ten years. I think it was around two thousand and four, maybe, um, and. Uh, so back to work eventually, which they all thought I wouldn't, but I was turning so back to work. The so when I got involved with the cannabis, the accident there, a lady had hit me from behind. I was uh, at work, just left at lunch to um, get pruning shears. It was in the fall to go to prim so I could trim my roses. And uh, whatever happened to her, she, I think, blacked out. She hit me so hard. I had a I have a Toyota T uh, Tacoma pickup truck, which is a fairly heavy model and hit me behind so hard that my truck went, was shoved right up to her windshield. Her car was underneath my truck. Luckily, she didn't get killed. Um, I instinctively must just put my foot on the brakes. I have no memory of the actual accident to this day because it gave me a severe concussion, um, dislocated bones and things. And, uh, that was one, I guess, on top of the other one, it just, you know, the body just said, okay, the heck, there's enough, enough. But um, when I was home, the biggest difficulty, the bones were, they were painful and you deal with that and the other injuries. But the biggest thing was that I was so bad, I couldn't put sentences together properly. I could not, yeah, couldn't remember the name of people, of, uh, sometimes my siblings, like I would know that I knew it, but it wouldn't come to me. Um, and this was very frustrating for me because, you know, intellectually, I'd always never had any issues. In fact, done pretty well in that. And so to not Definitely. even be able to, you know, I'd always been quite eloquent. Yeah. So I thought I, I went to a host of doctors and I mean a host of doctors because up here again, we're covered. Plus I had special benefits through my work and uh, they, every one of them said, uh, this was a year or so after it happened there, they'd be saying, you know, you just got to accept this is the way it is. It's not going to change. It's been this long. And I said, well, I appreciate your viewpoint, but I don't agree with you because 
I don't, I'm not ready to accept that yet. I said, yeah. it may come to a point that I have to, but I don't. And um, I said, I think just because we don't know how to deal with this doesn't mean there isn't a way. So, and even my, I had finally, I had gotten lawyers, uh, first time in my life I ever had uh, lawyers to sue anybody, but it was mainly because work was bugging the, you know, what out of me and different people. And I just, anyone that's had a concussion, they're terrible things because your brain is just scrambled and you can't think straight. You can't deal with stress. You can't, um, uh, there's so many things that you can't do that you could do before that, but the brain just isn't functioning. When I uh, finally got my concussion specialist, they explained, you know, your brain is injured and it has to recover the same as any other body and part. And uh, that was even from the first motorcycle accident. I'd learned about that. So on the second one, it was more the intellectual things that were bothering me. And that's when I was doing a lot of reading, found out that cannabis was the only thing we're recommending. Oh, hold on, Diane. And we have an unfortunate pause effect. right at that second. You did a lot of reading and you oh, found out that cannabis was what? Was the only thing that, that anybody anywhere said had any positive effect on head injuries and in particular concussion. Okay. So I decided what the heck I'm doing it and I'll try it on myself. I'll use myself as a guinea pig. I had nothing to lose because I wasn't prepared to stay the way I was. I was also very emotionally volatile. There are all kinds of symptoms that uh, concussion causes and depression and people beat themselves up thinking it's something wrong with them. It, it's not, it's an injury, the same as a broken yeah, bone. It's just it your is, brain yeah. is broken um, or you know, so my friend, I had a very dear friend who since passed away from other things. He had cancer, but he was a marijuana user. And again, just himself. And because he didn't go to the doctor, but he would use it as uh, an older gentleman. He was a woodcutter and very hard physical work. Um, he said there was no way he could ever have done that because he had severe arthritis and different things yeah. from that kind of work. But just, you know, he would have, a, a, he used to smoke it. He would smoke some in the morning, go out, do his day's work. And then, you know, at night before going to bed, he'd smoke again or if he was a pain. But and he did that for years. And he was also a recovering alcoholic. And he said that without the cannabis, he could not have stayed off of the drink. He credited it with uh, his being able to stay off because he was a really prolific alcoholic. Um, so um, I tried it. And before that, I'll just tell you this, Miguel, because my doctors, well, I was, yeah, it was before because I had a cat that I dearly loved and he sat in my lap, he opened his mouth and yawned and cats hardly ever let you see in their mouth. This thing had tumors that you could physically see that were like an inch oh. long and dark purple. And, and I'm, I was aghast. So I take him to the vet, the vet confirms says, no, it's, you know, without sending him away for a lot of very expensive tests, I'll tell you, Dan, this is cancer. It's not treatable. It's too far progressed. All we can do is keep him comfortable in a short time, a week or two, you just call me when he starts getting really bad because he will, and, and we'll put him down. So I stopped at my friend Jim's place that was on my way home and I'm boohooing and saying that. And Jim says, Diane, give him cannabis. And wait, wait, hold said, on. What kind of what kind of place does Jim own, Diane? Is it a dispensary by any chance? No, Jim. Oh, was just I, was a little, I was thinking maybe it this was. This is my friend, the woodcutter. <laughs> yeah. So Jim's just. Oh, OK. Uh, oh, oh, so Jim. Oh, OK. Gotcha. All right. Sorry. Jim, the woodcutter. Yeah. And he used to grow just four plants for himself. And this is even before it became legal. And, you know, that was his thing. And so he gave me some. I brought it home. I ground it up. And I it was trial and error because this at that time, it wasn't legal in Canada. And you had to uh, 
you know, see, I couldn't tell everybody and you couldn't like, you go ask people. So I would, I started small. That's the trick you should always do. Start, I gave them less and then um, increase it. So, but even at the end of just a pinch, I'd put it in as wet food night, morning and night. The changes were unbelievable. Okay. Um, the vet, the cat lived for two or three years after <laughs> this. He wow. gained weight. He not only was alive, he was full of life. He would rip around the house and play with the other cat. His, his tumors disappeared, Miguel. No and the kidding. only thing that I was giving him was the cannabis. The vet didn't believe me. The vet kept saying, well, you know, I haven't seen him in a while. I said, you don't believe me that he's alive, do you? And I said, I'll bring him in. So I did. I took him in. The vet looked at him and said, yep, he's not only alive, he's really healthy and his fur was good and his weight was good and he was really bright. And, uh, and that was entirely cannabis because there was nothing else that the cat was being given to. Uh, so it had to be the cannabis. But to make the tumors actually disappear, that was astounding to me that that was like the whole thing was such physical manifestation of how powerful the cannabis was um, as a medical tool. So because all the vet was going to give him another vet I'd been to was like drugs that makes them really dopey and stuff. And I didn't want that. Yeah. So nope, the cannabis, um, the cannabis worked there. So that's when I, I was then uh, after the second accident, when I got well enough, I was in Ireland visiting friends and uh, older friends and I was telling them and I told everybody the cat story. They all were amazed. They said they wish they could <laughs> get it over there. But um, anyway, he said, and when I wasn't feeling good, he said, well, Diane, why don't you take the cannabis? And it's funny how, you know, it just never occurred to me. And it's like a light going off and a bell ringing. And, and I said, you know, and I said, well, I don't smoke. I haven't smoked in, you know, eons. He said, no, he said, make it into a tea. And I said, Tommy, you're right. Why don't I? I'm going to try this. So when I got home, that's what I did. I, because I was still having a lot of the mental problems, intellectual problems, uh, and even the pain, like, and I was having to take pain pills, which I don't like because they have a lot of uh, side effects that are, are, makes you question, which is worse. So yeah. anyway, we, no, uh, I, agree, yeah. I, I started to take the, and I just make a tea. And at the beginning I had to drink um, a little more, and it was really pleasant. I, I experimented, this is where I was the guinea pig, um, because I added things to it. Actually, I'm going to tell you my my secret formula because if it helps people, I would be delighted. And it, it right. was amazing with me. I use, um, you can get, or I try to get, it's like a lower uh, a CBD, higher CBD, low THC. So okay. I don't have any desire at all to get stoned out of this. That's so not, okay. I, I, You're I talking about even, something like, uh, so something high CBD, low THC, something like Charlotte's Web is what is what yeah I, you know. i'm not sure because i just grow my own and so but that's um excellent the, uh, that's excellent yeah. <laughs> man i can't so wait for to pass that it's you know and there hasn't been the problems up here they thought in fact if anything that's lowered a lot but um i would i i put in the thing i would experiment on me um and oh, wait, 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 the secret adjusting. recipe well, I, I, I interrupted I, you, so I didn't. I don't want to. Yep. I don't want to. I don't want to get. So, I don't want to digress from that. Unless you don't want to share it. If you don't want to share three, it, that's completely cool, Diane. No, no. I'm. I think it's. It's God would expect me to do this because okay. I. Right. I share it with you here, and it's given them such relief. Um, it's 
cannabis, but make sure it's an organic, like homegrown, you know where it's from and, or grow your own if you can. Um, I know you can't there, so you'd have to have a trusted person. Um, and then like before I was growing my, cause I knew nothing about how to grow cannabis. I'd never done it before. So it was a learn on the run thing, but there's enough people around if they know that you're, um, you know, not trying to report them to the police, they'll they'll help you and, and show you and teach you things. And you can go on YouTube, actually. Now it pretty well tells you everything. <laughs> it's where I've learned a lot of stuff. So I would experiment. And I, I, at first, the marijuana itself, I really didn't care for the taste. It wasn't good. And it and it didn't give me the effect that I really wanted. So I okay, added so this is with, in, were you talking about um, with the tea or with the tea, right? Yeah, in a tea. So then I added to my thing some uh, Chinese tea that's very good. A friend gets it for me right from China. It's called whole leaf Chinese tea. It's not chopped up. And um, when you put the water, like the leaf opens up, you can actually see the big piece of leaf. Yeah, I've seen that. Some of those are really beautiful. It's it's lovely. And um, it has a totally different flavor, but it's also, I believe, higher. Because green tea itself is known to be healing and anti-inflammatory and all those things. So, but even when I had it, it was better, but it still didn't taste right. So on my farm here, I grow mint, which everyone tells me is very unusual mint. I don't know because it's the only mint that I've ever had. And again, this must be God because... Like I just, so I would cut the mint, I dry it and I add this mint because mint has been treated as a medicinal herb for centuries, the yeah. Persians and, you know, all the people there swear by it, Turkey, that stuff. And <clears throat> this mint is extremely strong mint. And um, uh, I just, I thought, boy, that's strong, but I, don't know, I guess all mints like that. And then people are going, no, 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 that's definitely, you know, because, so I make this tea and the mint gives it a beautiful taste. You really just taste the mint mainly with slight overtones of the others. And it's very good as an um, anti-inflammatory, it'll flesh you out um, because I, and interestingly enough, Miguel, and again, all of this is just my experience. I haven't, t- when I first started doing the tea, well, first of all, one of the, and, at first, you'll need to take more because you need it builds up a bit in your system, but you take what you feel you need. And I always say to people the same thing. I said, start out weaker and then, um, you know, if it's not doing what you want, increase the cannabis a bit or adjust the thing for your taste or whatever. Um, but I've come up with a blend and I can't even give you the amount of that because I just do it from, you know, my memory and sight. Um, but um, it's the three, those three ingredients is the only thing that goes in. Um, let it steep for five or 10 minutes. I would have it in the morning when I get up. So it's usually I'd be in so much pain, I could barely move. So I'd get a tub, a cup made. Now I think a good tip for people in that pain would be to put a, make a thermos at night so that when you wake up, if it's through the night or in the morning, yeah. you don't have to get up and make it. You can just pour yourself a cup and, and drink it. Um, I only just thought of that this year. I was a slow learner. Um, <laughs> But uh, we all gonna get there. We're all gonna get there one step at a time. (laughs) Right off the bat, I noticed that the pain, like, because I had severe. Both of my SI joints were dislocated, and they had to do and it tore different tendons and things down there. From the lady, they said that's common in rear end accidents. When and also common with football players because when they're tackled, that that's one of the most common injuries, and it's so painful. Anyone that has that. So um, where, where, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't catch that, Diane. Where, where were the tendons torn? The sciatic joints on the oh. right and left. When you're hit yeah, from wait. behind, okay, that's so what, your lower back. Both of my, 
both of them were dislocated and stretched, you know, the tendons and all that stuff. So, but, um, and they had, I was at that time having to take quite a lot of pain medicine um, through the day, just first, just to get out of bed, then to just be able to function through the day. And I wasn't happy about this. So long story short, eventually when I got onto the tea, it got so if I would just wait and have my tea um, through the day, generally I took no pills, but if there was something, if I had overdone it or did something extra, I might take like one pill just to get on top of the pain. Yeah. It's very important for people not to be in pain because pain prevents healing. And I have that from one of the top orthopedic surgeons in Toronto that put my arm back together. Um, he said that if you're in pain, you cannot heal. And that's a well-established fact. So that's when he, because I was afraid of even then getting hooked on pills. And I said, yeah, I don't want to become one of those hillbilly heroin people. And he's laughing and he goes, Diane, I know how much I'm giving you. It's not possible for, because he told me another thing that was interesting. He said, and I said, like, well, I get no high or anything off this. And he said, no, you won't, because I'm just giving you enough to deal with the pain. He said, the only people that are getting high, they're taking too much medicine. He said, if you're only taking enough to deal with the pain, you won't feel that you'll just have no pain or a greatly reduced pain. So that was interesting because no one had ever explained that to me before. And this man is world famous. He goes around the world teaching other orthopedic surgeons. Okay. So anyway, I experimented again with, you know, and it was sort of, you know, if you're in pain, I would make a cup of tea, sit in my recliner and within 15 minutes, you're not in pain. And this was astounding because uh, the pain had been very severe and constant. And the other thing that head injury people, and in particular, I'll speak of concussion because that's what I know, um, you cannot sleep at night. It's, um, I would wake up numerous times and you would also get these horrible concussion headaches. That's like someone putting a spear through your head. Mm. Um, it's just uh, excruciating. The, since I started taking the canvas tea, I have not had one of those headaches. Mm. And I, I would take the cup of tea maybe half hour before I was going to go to bed. It takes longer for it to go into your system because you're drinking it. Um, and, but then you get a slower, constant release of it through the night. So yeah. um, it, it was just wonderful from that point of view. Just the fact that I was finally able to sleep and that I didn't have these headaches was brilliant. So that's when I thought, okay, I'm in, I'm really going to commit to this. What, and, was um, what was your sleep like before that? Oh, if you, you would be so exhausted, you'd fall asleep, but within maybe 20, 30 minutes, you're waking up um, and you would have these headaches, you'd have, um, you're just tossing and turning, you're absolutely miserable. Also, the pain in my back would wake me up um, and I'd be tossing and turning and not wanting to take more pills. And uh, so um, the other thing was what, from the time of the, the head injury, I never had a dream and this, oh, wow. I, because you can never get into a deep enough level of sleep to have a dream. And it, it, it just occurred to me one day because after about maybe it didn't take very long, two or three months of doing the tea. I remember I woke up and I'd had a dream and I went, <laughs> like I, I, I'm getting back. Cause that was like the first dream in ages cool. since the accident. That is cool, Diane. I finally got enough sleep and a restful sleep. Like that was the difference. But oh, I think we're on a thing again. There. No, so you're good. You're good. Got, you said you finally got some sleep. restful sleep. Yeah. 
and that was a big thing. Like even before, if you slept, you'd wake up and feel like you hadn't slept. And uh, so that alone was wonderful. And then the fact that it really has diminished, you know, like the headaches gradually went away, the back pain. This morning I woke up, I was really stiff and sore. I drank a cup of tea and I'm sipping one now and um, the pain's pretty well gone. Like it's just, it, it's not pain even. It's just, you can feel it'd be more like a tender sensation, but no pain, which was great. Like I can move and stuff. And that's the other thing that I find it, it has Mobility. no intoxicating effect. Yeah. Um, because I often driving is one of the problems that really gets or things that gets my back because the way you have to sit and, yeah. um, you know, in the car, but so I'll take a thermos of the tea with me. I find I don't usually need to drink it going down, but if I'm going to Toronto for medical reasons, something near like an hour, uh, even if it's half or if you get there, you're usually really stiff when you go to get out of the car and coming back, you know, it just kills. So I would drink, um, out of my thermos or even a few mouthfuls takes the pain totally away doesn't impede my uh, mental acuity in any way and in fact is helping it because you're not distracted by the pain which anybody with this understands you know the pain is extremely distracting you're not you're not focused in the moment you're focused on the pain whether you want to be or not so um yeah that's and i just became so convinced and then um I felt that I had to share this, but it was still illegal at that time in Canada. So I had to be really careful, but I was, I had ordered, uh, I had bought some lights through uh, Facebook marketplace. I'm sure you have that there as well or something similar. They, do, they have it on the, on the U.S. version. Yeah. I went into uh, Lindsay, which is the closest town to where I live to pick it up. And there was this elderly lady. And again, I think like how I would pick this lady, it had to be God doing this stuff too, not for me, but to give her some relief. So she, we got talking about different things and she said um, that she, uh, I forget how it even came up. But anyway, at one point I said to her that I make a tea and have this cannabis that I'd had the concussion and that it's just been, I think she mentioned somebody, her neighbor had had a concussion, was in accident, had a concussion. I said, well, and so I told her and she said, oh God, could you bring me some? She said, um, I, I, I'm in pain and I don't sleep. And, and I said, I will, but you have to promise you can't tell anybody because I'm not. So I came home, I made it actually the tea. I didn't take the dry stuff because I thought it, people are, but again, people that are in pain, people that are really doing this, they, you get to a point where you think, you know what, I'm just going to try it because everything yeah. else has failed. And I dropped the, I took the thermostat and she poured it in. She said, well, well, how do I heat it up tonight? And I said, well, I keep everything very simple. I just heat mine in the microwave and it you know, seems to be fine. And uh, she says, okay. And I said, I just put it in a mug and yeah. Um, anyway, so that night, I guess she did. I came back a week later because I think she did something else. Anyway, we hooked up. I said, well, what did you think? And this lady was, I would say well into her seventies. She said, Diane, it was the best sleep I've had in 10 years. She said, I'm not kidding you. I said, did you have any intoxicating effect? She said none whatsoever. Um, Cause again, it's not, it's not made strong. And um, the, yeah. uh, she just loved it. And she said, you know, I'm not kidding. She said, where can I buy this? And I said, well, unfortunately I'm not allowed to tell you that now because nobody's supposed to be buying it because nobody's supposed to be growing it or using it. But I said, all of that's going to change very quickly in Canada. I already, I think we had already at that point approved 
medical marijuana because that was at one point two. my doctor had approved me for that so I could but the marijuana that that was when I did it um, you know I had to do it legally so I had to order through a certain place and I didn't find the marijuana that they gave and he had given me um, I guess it was like a vapor thing like where and I, I just found that all very awkward and I, I either I wasn't doing it right or it wasn't having an effect but it just so I had stopped doing that but the tea, and she agreed. She said, everyone says the tea is delicious because of this mint. And <laughs> it, it, it's just like it takes your whole body from your head. And uh, since I'm going to touch your cannabinoid system, and it's it's as if a cat had its fur sticking up and you take your hand and just smooth the fur all the way down. Your whole body just calms. It doesn't get intoxicated. It doesn't, you don't have any hallucinations or any of those. It's very, very normal. You just feel good. And it's also subtle enough that you can take a thermos of it with your, I use those thermos cups. Um, if you have an appointment or something, because no one knows, because there's no cannabis smell to it. It just smells like mint. Mint's the overriding um, thing. And you could sit and sip away very discreetly. Um, Nobody you knows. A, they just think you're having a cup of tea. You so got a really for, cool thing going up there, Diane. You got a really cool well, thing going up there. <laughs> and if I'm talking too much, you feel. No, Diane, I'm thinking I'm like, oh, man, that is really cool. I, I, I had I was like, wow, that is really amazing, Diane. I mean, well, I'm talking about it, I'm talking about the tea. About the yeah, That's it's so just, cool. it's been such an incredible gift. And again, I felt if it was wrong, God would have told me, don't be doing that. But there has been no side effects, none whatsoever from this. And the only effects have been positive. In fact, they were so good, Miguel, that um, I went to my, uh, the two main doctors, I went, I hadn't seen them in about three months or six months. Can't remember. It was some checkup. And both of them who don't like they operate separately, even my specialist, the pain specialist said to me, Diane, you look great. What are you doing? Is there something different? And I said, let me tell you. So I told him and he's a pain specialist. He really believes in the uh, powers of cannabis. And he said, it's been proven that it can uh, cure cancer. He said the, the, the medical community doesn't talk about that, but he said it has been proven. And, but he said he had never thought of doing the tea either. So um, I actually brought him some one day and he raves about it too. He says, it's great. Like it's, uh, like it's nice to drink. It's pleasant. And it has just phenomenal positive effects and no negative effects. So I said, I don't see a downside to this other than I've got a bunch of people now wanting my mint and I'm having to really just ration it out because yeah. I've got to expand by patch apparently, but, um, it's uh, I, I credit the mint, you know, again, it, these are all natural herbal things, but there seems to be, um, you know, a relationship when you put the three together, there's a dynamic um, thing that happens chemically and it really enhances the benefit of all three of them. And uh, so that's what I do. And I make tea bags. They call I now somebody just told me, cause I can't get internet here that you can buy, tea bags on Amazon, which I'm going to try like empty tea bags. Yeah. So I said, I need a tea bag making machine. And people look at me, what you, what do you do? And so I, I said, there's got to be one. I know it sounds strange, but there has to be. But then they said, you can buy them. What I use right now, I just use cheesecloth. Uh, again, being a country farm woman, we're very practical. So I cut those squares of cheesecloth, <laughs> um, put about two layers so it doesn't fall through until it okay. gets wet. <clears throat> tie it with thread like put the amount in there and if I had to guess Miguel I would say approximately probably a teaspoon of the dried mint um, a, a half a teaspoon or 
well, you can put more or less of the um, green tea, if, whatever, if you can get the good stuff. And then I would say, like, I put a couple of maybe two teaspoons of the cannabis. I grind it up in my magic bullet, like all my stuff. Oh, no kidding. Basic. In the bullet. All right. Yeah. Works like a charm. Works like a charm. <laughs> <laughs> so you just put it in. And because if like, again, you, you can kind of tell by the color. And if you want it stronger, you steep it longer. If yeah. you don't want it as strong, you make it less, you know, and uh, yeah. the uh, but tie it up with a piece of thread and Bob's your uncle. Then you can just take your tea bags with you. And again, nobody would know you could order uh, just a cup of hot water anywhere and put your bag in and um because you get about i get about three cups out of a of a tea bag so really uh the uh it's simple it's well up here there's it's dirt cheap because my friend she gives me the green tea and i give her preserves that i make so we swap off and um the That's mint cool. i grow so i give them mint when they need it too but um you got it. yeah i think it, it it's very simple companies even the government will try to make it be much more complicated, much more uh, difficult than it is. And I am a great believer in keep it simple, stupid, and it works. And it works. It's dirt cheap. Um, they, at some point, I thought, you know, but I, think, I don't know what's involved in this. I might even look into starting to produce it. And if I did, I would donate a lot of the product to something research or something because um, and I've had people tell me that anything that can take away pain like that, like they said, who wouldn't take that? And I said, I know, and there is no side effects. Like, so, but I know I would be leery if I didn't have, well, at the time I had to have the contact, it was my good friend. I knew his stuff was just organic hundred percent. And, uh, and now, like I said, I grow my own and, and I'm learning how to dry it and do all those things. And, um, but, uh, you know, one or two plants would more than produce enough for a year for a person. We're allowed to have four, but this year, I think only two of mine, there was two that turned out to be males. So we had to throw them out. So I was just learning how to sex the marijuana. Who knew that you had to do that? But anyway, I have not started um, growing. I cannot, I can't do it here. So I'm looking yeah. at articles and yeah, you're right. There's male and female and yeah. The female the is the one you want. The, one the female is the yeah, one you the want. Male flowers. And I, I said, well, why wouldn't you want it? Because it made, like, as a farmer, you would think, well, you need the male to fertilize the female right. to produce the fruit. And they said, no, the male produces this flower that then, go, well, it kind of does because what happens is then it, um, I guess, lands on the female and she then will, it produces all seeds. All of her stuff will turn into seed instead of, and it's the bud that you want that's got the, uh, the medicinal things in it. So, um, I, I just learned that this year that like it's an ongoing uh, process. So, but um, yeah, it's really uh, um, what really kept it out of people. And even now uh, big pharma makes hundreds of billions of dollars out of drugs. And especially when I was in Florida and as I was telling you, I do have a place and I haven't been down for a few years because of COVID and all these things, but um there were so many serious drug addicts that I encountered up around there. And I thought just this little place of, uh, you know, near Deland, Florida, which is a small uh, thing that's up inland from Daytona Beach. But in this little community that we were in, uh, which is kind of a poor community, young people and even older people absolutely ruined because they were heavily addicted to 
you know, this uh, crack cocaine and methamphetamines and all these things. And yeah. what they found up in Canada anyway, is that the prescriptions for pain medication have dropped dramatically because so many people are using medical marijuana that they don't need to use. And it's also better. It isn't causing them the problems that the pain medication causes. Um, so it, I think, and they've shown this to, I think there's even programs in America where they've, they've proven that anywhere where it's legal or people can get access to it, that the use of illegal opioids drops dramatically. Well, imagine the effect that that would have on jails because most people are committing, not most, but a high percentage commit crimes because they need money to go out and buy drugs. If they're not having to do that, um, then the crime rate goes down. If crime rate goes down, your amount of people in prison goes down. And also it means you've got more productive people in the community being Society able becomes to, safer. Yep. They can live the life they're meant to live and without harming themselves or other people. So it's, you know, but those things are never talked about, or I find very rarely, because again, there's such political pressure put on uh people because of the power of of these big pharmaceutical companies what i believe is going to change that is that the big pharmaceutical companies have figured out that they're not going to stop this movement it's a movement and people are finding out and so they are starting to get into the business themselves up here in canada anyway i don't know if they're in states and once they decide that they can you know their big problem is they can't stop people growing their own so that's i noticed that's um, where they see a lot of the dollars disappearing (laughs) What's hilarious now is there. So it's such as life. So be it for them. Well, and they can still make a bunch of other drugs that people want to buy. Yep. You want to know what's going on now? They're trying to convince people, oh, you should never buy from an unlicensed um, dispensary because, oh, they have all these pesticides and things in them. Well, there may be one or two that say, but people know better than to do that. And for instance, but the other thing is, grow your own like it's not I mean even if you're in a part if you have a balcony you can put it in a pot put it out on your balcony and Bob's your uncle or you know rent a little plot somewhere or something but um it's uh I I have to laugh and I and when I see and my uh cousin's husband she passed away so he he has a very unusual disease he's apparently one in like 100,000 people that gets this thing I forget what it was but very very painful when he went, so they held a night for uh, people that were going to be on medical uh, marijuana to learn about it. He went to the class and he said easily 90% of the people there were over 60. That um, elderly mm-hmm. people in particular are finding this to be a godsend because it's fabulous for arthritis. I should, I forgot to say it because of all these accents. I've obviously, I've got arthritis. Imagine, yeah. I take a cup of the tea, bingo, bingo, you're good to go. You're not, uh, the pain goes. And That's cool, Diane. That is like, cool. And it's such a simple way, simple thing to do. So fortunately, the governments now agree and people can um, do it. The only thing, it also allows you then, and I have friends, police friends, who tells you what it allows them to do is then direct the resources against more serious drugs, against um and also even like you're limited to the four plants, but so what they do is they can then come down harder on people that are in commercial operations that are, you know, going to smuggle it or the ones that are putting like the pesticides on because they just, it's yeah. a money thing with them. And uh, so it allows them to direct the resources to that instead of the person that's got three or four plants growing in their backyard or they've got a bag in their, you know, dining room or something. Um, 
so really, and we have not had, I'm not aware of any problems that have evolved because the marijuana, the only thing that seems to be a bit, and again, I don't know if you'd get this regardless, is the drinking while under the influence of marijuana. But my feeling is that these are people that would be under the influence of alcohol and driving if they weren't under that, but they're coming up uh, with tests and they're also got a very uh, good, um, cause it's the young people that that seems to be an issue with. So they're really putting a good education program out and trying to educate the kids plus also educate their parents about, yeah. you know, what end up. So that's it. But other than that, honestly, I haven't, uh, um, I'm not aware of any issues. In fact, if anything, it's kind of lowered things because if people are mellow, they're not going to be out fighting and carrying on and doing things that's going to get them involved in the criminal justice system. And uh, it is good, Diane. I like it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, even my I forgot to say, like the one pain specialist, he still swears with us. And he said, Do you mind if I tell other people about this? I said, No, because anything that can help these people with their pain and the worst any of you talk to them they'll say the worst is that you're in pain and you can't sleep that that's just the double whammy this and takes care of both of those so that you know, that's a no. that's a big deal that's a big deal and you're in canada it's even colder up there and that's harder on arthritis it's harder on those it's harder on yes. that stuff yep in the winter um in fact i had a guy cut my hay this year um this fellow what did he tell me i think he said he's 67 or 69, somewhere in there. And he uh, had never smoked marijuana in his life, had no desire, but someone had told me this. So he uses CBD oil. He had worked in a profession where he was on his knees on concrete a lot. So his knees are just wrecked. And uh, he said that he gets up in the morning because he still farms. He farms by himself quite actively. He rubs CBD oil on each of his knees. He has a tea or coffee and breakfast goes out and he said he's good for the day until maybe like five or six o'clock when he comes in or if he, when he's going to bed, he might rub it again. But, and he said he takes no other pills. And before the same as me, he was having to take all these pills that weren't really working anyway and have these other bad side effects. Um, so like I said, it's kind of hilarious, but something they weren't counting on. Really, it's the seniors that are getting the most benefit out of this stuff. That's, in Canada. You know, I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that because, because it's it's important to take care of seniors because we all want to be that age and older, and we want other people to recognize that it's we're still people and we're still and we're functional. Be, like, exactly. Yeah. And and people need help. And, and that's, and, and my mother has a lot of severe pain too. And, and so that's where I can definitely understand when somebody and my, my dad's passed away, but he had a, he had, he was under a lot of severe pain too. When you're in a lot of pain, it really does. It can consume you. It totally consumes you. It takes your life away. Um, you can't that affects all your joy. relationships. That affects all oh, your relationships with everybody. Because you're grouchy and you can't do things. And, yeah, but, right. And also, like I said, my uh, story, I'll digress from it, but in my own personal case, I know, like I said, I went from not being able to put sentences together properly. Now, some of that improved a little bit, but it still wasn't where it needed to be. And um, But by using the cannabis faithfully, um, the tea, then um, I'm back. In fact, I've been just finally, and no one thought I was ever going to return to work. And I can't that's, So that's so. the amazing thing, Diane, is yeah. that here you are 
still doing it. You're cleared to return to the bench. That's well. And I, a year ago, I wouldn't have been, cause I also in the midst of this thing got COVID. Oh my God. And trust me, nobody wants that. It, it was horrible. It nearly did me in. But, um, so after I get out of that, I, that's when I get back onto the uh, cannabis tea and drinking and, um, it, the pain, like I said, it's great for the pain, but it, my thinking and I was gradually improving, but I know it, it improved. And even my doctors, again, like physically I was okay, but intellectually they were worried about me and they commented as well that I was so much better, like sharper. And before I'd have gaps, like somebody would ask me a question, I'd have to think, stop and think. And for, and now you don't, I'm back. I would say I'm pretty well back to normal and the courts couldn't believe it. So they made my doctors and pain specialists and psychiatrists and all these people send letters saying, yeah, she's, she's really, and I'm telling the insurance company and telling it. So the chief judge then decided that I needed to have a functional abilities evaluation. Anybody that's off and dealing with insurance companies will know about them and um, went through two days of intensive testing and passed. And right uh, so I said, there you go. I'm certified. So, but I knew myself, I, even when they told me I had to, I think they thought, oh, she'll be scared. She won't want to do this. And I thought, bring it on. Well, you know, I'll give us a go because I felt pretty good and sure it up. So Hallelujah. That, that is, that is cool. That and, is really You know, cool. but I believe it's God as well. Like God, we need us for about, um, he, when I say God, I, I include Jesus Christ in that because, um, there was times when I'd be really low or really down or really depressed and, you know, you pray and just say, you know, like, I'm just, you know, I, I just need help here. I need you to lift some of this uh, burden and sure enough, they would. And the biggest thing that I had to accept was that, you know, you're on this strange path, but um, it's the path you're meant to be on. So it's not really what you're doing. It's it's fact that you're doing it, and the things that you're going to learn or the impact you could have in somebody else's life that at that moment, you know, needs some help or needs this strange woman to show up and and say, you know, I believe you and and, uh, and you're going to get uh, your pension or whatever. And that like the big guy that gave me the bear hug and um, I said, I wasn't a very, uh, in God's world, I guess I would be good because there's been times when I actually got teary-eyed at these things because they'd be so emotional and we'd have to take a break. And uh, I'm thinking, you always see these judges are so stone-faced and don't show any emotion. And um, But, you know, when you have grown men crying because it's finally they somebody believes them and, and they're going to get, you know, what, what they needed, just some help financially and with their medicine and stuff. So uh, it was a great opportunity. I always think, and that again, deepened my faith when I saw it, is that these things, um, I just feel so humbled to be put in a position to be able to have an impact, a positive impact on these people, because the systems themselves can be quite heartless. And if you get the wrong people, it, just destroys people and um i think a lot of them commit suicide they just get very um defeated and uh so that's why i find it's important to not just say i'm granting your claim i tell them you know why i'm granting it and i'm also critical of the board uh well that was when i was doing that work when i the first time i did that i got called into the second highest man's office in the organization and said Diane you're gonna write you've written this decision I went yes because he had the fight I guess somebody alerted him that oh you know and he says and you're quite critical of the board 
And I went, yes, with good reason. And I explained. Uh-huh. And he said, are you are you sure that all your facts are correct? I said, yes, I've checked and double checked. And he said, well, we don't normally, I know before I saw him, the legal counsel for them called me and said, you know, well, we don't, we don't say negative things about the board. And I said, well, maybe it's time we did because they have no problem saying negative things about these poor workers that are injured, that are hurt. And I think it's time they got held accountable for their own actions. And so when I said this to the man, he said, well, print it. He said, as long as you're sure that it's correct, maybe it's time you're right. So I did. And after that, no, we didn't make a big point of doing it, you know, but in outrageous cases, it, that needed to be noted. And I would now go back and say, you know, on this occasion, the board did this, like a man would tell them he wasn't good. He was back in school trying to get stuff. They would phone him through the day at home when they knew that he was in school. I said, if he hadn't been in school, they would have been critical of him for not being in school if he was home to answer the phone. And yet, because he's in school, they were critical of him because they phoned and he wasn't there to answer the phone. I said, how totally ridiculous is that and uh, and I would say things like that and, and it was good because it made them pull their horns in and uh but I love when I left there I'll, I gonna this I'm just I'm proud of this the um the director told me because I then as I was asked to take on the role of a just peace but the director when I was leaving said that I was one of the few people that when they said that I wasn't being reappointed that both the employer and worker side called him and said what in Hades are you doing she's one of your good ones and he said it's so unusual for both sides like either your the worker side thinks you're great or the employer side thinks you're great but with me they both called in and I said well that's because I do what's right. I don't do what's politically correct. And um, no matter what political body th- is trying to sway me, but I do do what I think is the correct thing. And, um, and I said, thank you for telling me that. Cause it means I must be, must be working. So. Hey, no, that's, yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a compliment. That's well, cool. and I, another big thing, Miguel is I'm going to tell you that every day then, and every day when I'm sitting on the bench, before I go, I pray, and I'll ask God to help me make the right decisions that day to be able to decide what's right, but also to say the things I need to say and not say the things that I shouldn't say. And, um, and he is always there, you know, and Jesus, I always feel has my back in that poem where, you know, you don't leave footprints because Jesus is carrying you. That's, there's a lot of single footprints in my life. I'll tell you. Um, and, but I always feel that I'm, and again, humbled by this, getting direction from above, and and you just need to listen to it. Um, it's very subtle. It's not like somebody comes down, knocks on your door, and goes, "Okay, this is what you're going to do today." Um, but you know, you just—it's hard to explain. But you you just you know what what's expected. I know what you mean. I do. I know what you mean. It's a, it's a it's very peaceful. Yeah. There's no strife in it. There's no stress. There's no worry. And you don't want to creep in. It it will want to creep in. It will want to creep in. No doubt. Stress, worry, concern, all that stuff will start to, will want to, will want to try to creep in, but I know it's absolutely. And there's definitely consequences that comes, uh, you know, from doing the right thing. But I always feel that if God's happy with what I'm doing, I don't care what the other people think or do. And, um, you know, because that again, because I know I'm doing what God expects me to do or Jesus expects me to do. And, and, the old saying, if God leads you to it, he'll lead you through it, um, is my motto. And um, 
you just, you know, I just keep, keep head down, keep moving. So, um, so I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that you were raised, you were born into a Christian family. I was a farm family. My mom, not like my dad's side. I said, no. And it was me. He just wasn't taught it at all. And, oh, that's right. You uh, said your dad was agnostic. Yeah. That's right. Okay. But oh, my, that reminds uh, me. I wanted, well, I wanted he, to. Like if you asked, did he believe in God? He would, but well, I'll tell you when he was uh, dying, he certainly came to know the Lord and which I'm so happy for. Um, and I'm so glad that God sent the angel down to him to, you know, to show him because he was very afraid, which you would be. It was horrible disease. Um, my great aunt Lena was one that she was quite very religious. And she always, I think, but my mom, bless her, would go quite often. A lot of times she would take us and drive us to Sunday school, drop us off and pick us up. But, you know, even that, so she always made sure we went and we were all dressed in our little Sunday dresses that all matched my two sisters and I and our shoes and our bags and our hats. And, um and you'd come back, but, and the church in a farm community plays a big role. There was just the one church yeah. here. So, you know, you'd have special concerts, you'd have Christmas pageants and those things. And, um, but I can never, well, I, I don't really remember a time of not having God in my life. So I've been very blessed with that. And Jesus, and um, even back as young as three or four years old and I was about three and I don't know how I remember this but I do and I tell people and they look at me and shake their heads they say they do not know how I remember it but it's factually correct when my great-grandfather died um, my great aunt Lena carried me up and had me bend down and touch him on the hand now if he did that now they'd have the children's aid called for it and uh, have you put in prison but at the time she said it was cold and you know there's definitely said your, your grandpa's not here anymore. His soul, his spirit has gone to live with Jesus now. And because as a little kid, you don't understand. He's like, why isn't grandpa getting on? So, but she just walked yeah. me right up and go the week. And, and it didn't traumatize me. Then you go, okay, all right. That's, you know, what's going to happen here. And so it, 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 it wasn't traumatic. And uh, I was sad that he was gone, but, but like touching him or anything wasn't, um, so I think people, again, they make things more complicated than they need to be. Like, I didn't need any crisis intervention. I didn't need a psychologist. Um, she just calmly took me up, said, touch him. Yep. He's cold. He's stiff. He's dead. He's, that's just his body. His soul has gone. And, uh, and even at that young age, it, it was, I accepted that. That was, in fact, I think kids are more open to that. So, yeah, um, I think you're, I think you're actually right about that. I think you are right about that. I think you're right about but think that truly without the without discovering this cannabis tea Miguel I would not be doing what I was doing it's questionable if I'd even be alive because there were times when I was so depressed from the pain from all you know phone call all this stuff you're having to deal with because your injury and not making any headway not seeing a light at the end of the tunnel that you know I remember saying to God like if this is all there's going to be like just take me now like I'm and uh but he had better plans or different plans. And um, I'm almost afraid what he's gotten planned for me now, but they, uh, <laughs> Oh no, I, Dan, I bet it's going to be really cool. I bet. I mean, I, it, it's not going to be a letdown. <laughs> you know that, you know what I mean? You know, it's not going to be a letdown. Sometimes Always it's weird. Sometimes you think about, we kind of get scared of it. It's like, Oh, I don't know. Do I want this next challenge? It's kind of like, you're probably already in it. You're probably, you've already walked yeah. into it in your priority. You know what I mean? Or else you're in something that's preparing you for it, what yes. is going to come. Yeah. And um, like my work in the prisons, then I, even when I wasn't doing the bursary, I worked in the prisons, I took prison courses and 
that is a really humbling thing as well. And also strengthened my faith. Um, saw some terribly sad stories and I tended to go to the prisons where the majority of people didn't want to go because I felt those people, if anyone needed, you know, a touch of humanity, a touch of kindness. And, um, uh, but I would say I got at least as much, if not more out of it than they did. And again, it's very humbled that God put me in that spot as well. And I'm sure when I told my parents, cause they often just shook their head at what I was doing. When I said I was going to law school, they're thinking, well, thank heaven. She's finally doing something, you know, normal. But even at that time, um, I had to, like, I was 30 years old, I had to give up, a, I had established full uh, branch status for the John Howard, I had full funding, I had everything going great, that's the time most people go, okay, I'll just sit back and relax now and enjoy the fruits of my labor, nope, I say to them, well, I've written the tests, and I'm uh, waiting to hear, but I plan to go to law school, and they go, well, what about your job, and I said, nope, I'm, I'm meant to go to law school, so I'm just giving it up, and they're going, honest like they because fire building why would you give up a secure income and all this stuff and you're gonna go off and and they're going but you're too old I said no I'm not too old but if I wait around I could become too old and um, I just feel this is the right thing that I have to do so uh, packed in the job packed in and that's where I think when God's telling us in Jesus not to get so attached to material things like you have to be willing to like it's fine to have material things but don't get so attached to them or make them so important that they prevent you from doing what you're supposed to do like that. It, it, you, that know what, you know, you know, I, I agree. So, I, and this is something that I think a lot of, a lot of people, whether of all faiths get crossed up on. I do too. And I think on the Christian side, it's, there's, you, it's scripture is clear. Jesus says your father knows the things you need. And there's also parts where he says, and he knows the desires of your heart. Yep. And not all the desires of our heart come from our spirit. Some of them come from the flesh, but that's my point. My point is this, is that um, you were saying, oh, golly, <laughs> Diane, I'm the one who's forgetting stuff right now. So, so uh, you were, you were, you said, oh, golly, I'm sorry, Diane, but it, it was, we were talking about provision. Oh yes. Materialism. There we go. Okay. So there's having, you have to live. You, you, you need materials to live. What I believe we're called to not do is make our life all about maintaining and getting more of it. Absolutely. If we're trusting him to provide it for us and we're walking into it. And I don't mean, when I say trust him to provide it for us, I don't mean like a snap of a finger. I mean, you walk out, you do your thing, you go to school, you go to work, you, you conduct your life, but you're not stressing about when am I going to get, you know, the stress of it, the stress over materialism is what I'm getting at. That's what I'm kind of driving yeah. at is this is stress over materialism, seeking that out. And there's a difference between the way Paul says it. And I can't remember which, which epistle he says it in. He's like, but I, I, I know plenty and I know lack and in all of it, Christ is there with me, taking care of me. And Absolutely. I'm not, yeah, you know, so it's so. But the part you know, Miguel, that I was thinking, I was telling um, someone one day, I said, uh, she said, Oh, you don't actually believe in God, do you? I said, Absolutely. And more importantly, God believes in me. I said, That's what I find astounding. And I said, In scripture, and then she's on me, I said, 
So God knows every hair in your head. Imagine that he knows every hair on your head. And um, as a child, even now, I love the part where it says, you know, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow and, and the, you know, the sparrow that falls. And if God's going to catch them and save them, do you not think he's going to look after you? And um, that just, you know, I think those parts maybe don't get enough uh airtime i guess for lack of a better word um, you know what i think i think i think that when here's what i think i, I know exactly what you mean because that because even jesus says himself he's like i don't even want you to worry because yep. worrying means you're going in the wrong direction and when it comes to those scriptures that you just said i think they've been they've been caricatured Exactly. Those it's strong, a, those strong pillars that that Jesus is saying, you can trust me with this because yes. I love you, and I've proven it. And your it. father loves you. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so. they they become caricatures, like the hair on the head and the and the and the bird. It becomes like a yeah, it, you know what I mean. The 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 tone, the attitude towards it becomes a caricature of what it really is, and yep. that's the sad thing I think with some scripture is that it's been it's become caricatured and and uh belittled and you know that's there are some pastors and preachers that have some that have helped that along i'll put it like that they've, they've helped with that characterization of that but uh the materialism part of it you're right I, I agree with you you know you have to live but you don't have to make the focus of your daily life all about materialism enjoy it enjoy it that's enjoy right it. like truly Miguel, if i lost everything tomorrow i wouldn't be thrilled but me I neither <laughs> i'm still gonna survive because i you know god's given me enough skills and things that i can go that i can earn money i'm gonna have food on my table i'm gonna have a roof over my head and um that you know like i was, I was at a funeral a few weeks ago two or three weeks ago and this man was sitting behind me and I knew that he was known for being, you know, very materialistic, but this is how sad. And I felt actually pain for this man. He talked all the way through the service while it was done. There was a screen cause there was a lot of us who were sitting there, but um, the fellow that he was beside, he talked about money and possessions the entire time that the service and all the people sitting there and went into depth about it, like he's building a house and how much a foot and how much this was, and this was going to cost this much. It's and it went isn't on. It, isn't it interesting? Those, that, those two things happening at the same time. And I thought this man is truly lost. Here he is at a funeral where if it's ever going to sink into him that you are not going to take this with you, this should be it. And it was his cousin's husband, I guess, who was a kind, really good, wonderful man. I'm no doubt he's in heaven, but um, the fact that even that couldn't get through to this man who's well into his seventies, he might be in his early eighties and still obsessed with, obtaining things and gaining things and no matter how much he has it's not enough and if he started right now and tried to spend all the money he has i doubt if he could do it um but how sad is that so i think that's what jesus and god were saying don't get hung up in this like yeah. it's not um don't let it own you don't make it a god a false god and uh so 
um, I just consider myself very humbled that, you know, that I have the things I have. You said something interestingly earlier, though, about, you know, when you can lose faith. And I remember I apologized to God and to Jesus because I was going through a really difficult time a while ago. And I was saying, you know, I'm so worried. I'm so worried about this, about this. And oh, then yeah, I we caught do it. Myself, We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Well, sure. I caught myself and I said, and I have to ask your forgiveness because if I had enough faith, I wouldn't be worried. And so please forgive my lack of faith on this and please, you know, help build it up so that um, I know that regardless what happens, I'll get through it. You know, so. And you know um, what? That's actually, that's actually in the new Testament. That's in the new Testament. One of, I can't remember exactly which, it was one of the uh, Israeli Israelite rulers had a son or a daughter. I think it was a daughter. I think it was Jarius. I may I may be getting the exact name and the and whether it's a son or a daughter wrong, but Jesus' response was, "Oh, you have little faith," and he says, "Help my unbelief, bless my unbelief." So, and he does. He meets each one of us right where we're at. There is no there is no like I got to get to this place in order for him to hear me. I got to get to this place of performance or le- of this level where where I'm acceptable for for Jesus to to he- even hear me, and that that's pretty impressive. Because I mean that that's just it's impressive for a God, a loving God. And I, and there's oh. something else that I want to circle back to with also because I said it and I remember your dad. You said your dad was agnostic, and he was. That's not the first time I've heard a story of somebody on their deathbed accepting to be loved by Christ, consenting to be loved by Christ. And they see, and the family or friends standing on that person's bedside sees the person's physical demeanor turn to one of peace instead of pain and discomfort. And, and you're looking at them and it's like, you're, nobody's doing it from them externally. That stuff's happening internally. Nurses came in. He had nurses coming a couple of times a day. The nurses came in an hour or two after this, and they said, and we had told them nothing, they said, something's changed with your father because he'd been very agitated uh, stuff before this, and the drugs weren't working. And um, they said, uh, what's happened? Something's happened to your father. He looks so peaceful. And I just looked, because it was a private moment, I just said, there was something happened. The hand of God came down but it's private. Other than that, I, I won't say anything more, but I said, dad's at peace now. And they said, mm-hmm. we can see that. And that's, and that's amazing. That is amazing. Was, and that's where I'm like, I was talking with a, with a, a, another one of, one of your, one of your countrymen, his name is Cy Williams. He, he runs a few magazines up there. One of them's called high Canada magazine. You may have heard of it, huh? <laughs> but we were talking about the exact same thing. And the only way, only a loving God would allow somebody up until their last breath, the opportunity up until their very last breath to say, will you let me love you now? Because after you draw this last breath, there's no more breath and your decision's made. What I thought was so extremely kind of God at that time too was because these little like I call them coma things went on for a few days that he would be so kind as to know that dad just wasn't at a point in his life where he could have accepted, you know, this otherwise. So takes him on these journeys, sends the angels or sends Christ or whoever down to 
show him what was relative to him in terms that he would understand, you know, like as he farmed all his life. So the fact there's this beautiful meadow and he, his eyes just lit up and his face lit up and he said to me, Oh, Diane, you should have seen it. It was so beautiful. And then he said, and they were all there. And I said, who's that dad? And then that's when he named the people in his family that had gone or even friends. And I thought, what a great and loving God we have that would be that tender, I guess, would be the word. Yeah, to, lo- like, to it, yeah, tender, loving. Take him and show him that love. And I think that opened his heart, you know, when, uh, and people don't think of God. They think for some reason God is this punitive, angry, nasty guy. He's and, waiting to thump um, you on the head. That's the, that's the picture yeah. a lot of people have. He's waiting for you to screw up so he can hit you over the head with his yeah. stick. Or strike you with some lightning saying, I've been waiting for you to pop off. I've been watching you. I've been just waiting for this opportunity. Unfortunately, I think there are many, I think there are too many Christians that still think that way. And That's there are sad. a lot of non-Christians yeah. who have that opinion of God. Because God is about love. And exactly. I don't doubt that for a moment. And um when you said in your well, your questions, I think you said, do I believe in a hereafter? Absolutely. Um, you can't have seen what I saw and not uh, not believe in that. And, um, you know, will there be a consequence for us? Well, no, because Jesus paid the price for our salvation. But, Amen, you know, Diane. Amen. You know, paid a huge price and and continues to maybe um, else at a certain point, they just say, you know, really it's been how many centuries and they haven't got it yet like you know but again god's saying no we'll just we'll just give them a bit more like they're coming like there's and um so yeah it's just it doesn't mean that you can live your life and be a complete jerk and like the this man and i i, I couldn't help and i know him and i couldn't even turn around and look at his face because i thought he died tomorrow he's going to help because he gives nothing away he doesn't help anybody he doesn't even think about anybody he can only he's so consumed with his materiality um and that to me was just a tragedy and um you know and be there surrounded by hymns and stuff and still be of that mindset i thought god sakes um but um yeah no they uh you know god has brought well funerals, funerals everything are, that i do pardon funerals are funerals funerals and retirement ceremonies those are some things that that uh that are really interesting to listen to i like going to them i really do i mean it sounds funny i like going to funerals but i don't i if if i'm invited to one if i if i'm not invited but if i know it's like and i can go i will go and there was this one time because you brought because of your story, it reminded me of this. I, I mean, the same week I went to a funeral and a retirement ceremony, and both of them, the person who retired and the person who passed away, both wanted or recited lyrics from Frank Sinatra's "I Did It My Way," mm-hmm. and it was weird. It was actually really. It was actually like. The sensation that the audience had was you did it your way and it didn't really go very well. And I'm not yeah. trying to be me. I'm saying, you know what I mean? It's like, there's a lot of pain where we think if we, if we think we're, we've got it all sorted out and we're figuring I did it my way. And it's kind of like, Oh man, that's a painful way. And 
I, I know these two individuals and I know that they were loved and they had joy in their life, but I also know that they had a lot of things that, that uh, there was some bitterness that had taken root and, you know, that's a choice. It's a choice to hold on to bitterness. And it was interesting. It was really interesting because the funeral was first and I was like, whoa, Wow, it's interesting you're hearing Frank Sinatra's because they played it at the funeral because she's not, you know, she had passed away. And it was mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra's I did it my way. And I was just like, that is really, it was just odd hearing it. You know, I was just like, wow. And, um, and then at the ceremony, gentleman recites it, military officer recites it. And I know he wasn't happy because they, he, he was retired. You know, when, when you don't promote anymore, they're saying, thank you for your service. Yeah, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Yeah. Yeah. And in order to save some face, you know, it's like, hey, screw you. I did it my way, you know, and it's kind of like, man, you know, when I think about it like that from the terms of a a retirement ceremony, it's kind of like, because I did have one of those. And uh, you you have to think about what you're going to say. You know, I mean, you're, you're summing up a body of work for that time period. And there's a lot there's there's a even with all the garbage you're there yeah and you did and it's done and what do you want to well you can be grateful for it but you still are you still gonna you know is that root of bitterness gonna take you're gonna let that thing sink in a little deeper and these things are these things are points in people's life where they prepare for it they say something intentionally and then we also have something called social media where you know what i mean it's kind of like wow it's like that it's amazing. It's an amazing mixture of words and meaning, meaning of words and, and how, what, you know, it's, it's an amazing life. It's a weird and crazy life we live in. And with it's, I still can't go over. I did the story about your dad. I still, I still keep going back to that because that is just that, like I said, I had just done in this conversation with Cy Williams and we were just talking about a loving God. And, oh, and then you tell the story and i did not know you're going to tell the story prior to this recording and so when you say i didn't afraid, know i was going to tell it, the so. timing of that could not have been better he uh what well, dad was very touched but he lived a few days after that not a not a great long time um but again when he passed it was extremely peaceful there was no uh you know if they're not they're passings that aren't peaceful but his he yeah. he just he just drifted we all were around there we got in there and his soul left actually i'm gonna tell you this story because it's funny it's funny but it's not funny but in a black irish way it's funny so i had there was a lot of people at the house and it was just a small farmhouse and so i said you know i'm gonna go home to my place which isn't far it's 10 minute drive i want to have a shower grab some clean clothes i'll be back early in the morning and so i got a call about five in the morning that i needed to come because they thought you know he was passing so i grabbed stuff quickly get over to the house and dad we had a hospital bed set up in the main part of the house and um because he was determined he wanted to die at home so I did everything I could to facilitate that and and he did but so we're in there we're carrying around and I said my brother and we're looking at because this is a new thing I mean it isn't like you get to do a lot of these things and have experience so um he's I said you know his dad's still alive and they said well we think so so I go over and I'm I'm looking at his breathing and his heart rate and everything had become very very uh week anyway but i i could catch a little bit of a faint uh, pulse so then i 
I think it was about an hour maybe, but we couldn't detect the pulse. We couldn't see any sign of him breathing. So I said, I, I'm not sure, but I believe he's passed. So my brother came, my sisters, and they all agreed it looked like he had passed. And so I called different people to let them know. And I called the funeral home and lovely people that you saw it then. They were so kind and they had said, not to worry, Diane, um, we'll just, you know, I said, there's no real rush. We're going to call a few people. They may want to come and say goodbye. And see, he looked very peaceful. He was just in bed. And, and uh, they said, that's okay. We'll get ready and we'll come out with the uh, hearse and pick him up. So we're sitting there in about a good half hour, maybe an hour went by. And dad wasn't losing color like he they should fairly quickly. I think it was with and, and he wasn't going cold. And I knew again from some of the more morbid cases I'd done, this should happen pretty quickly. Like your body temperature drops and you're you start to go white and purple and stuff. But Ed so I said to Merv, my brother, I said, I'm not sure he's dead. And he looked at me and he goes, I'm not sure he's dead. And the two sisters, you know, no. And so I said, I gotta call. I got to call a funeral home back and cancel the hearse because dad is going to be royally pissed if he, if I've called the thing and he isn't actually dead. So I said, this is ridiculous. But we're starting to laugh at that point because the stress and everything. So I called the funeral home back and I get Shane, one of the, and I said, Shane, Diane, oh, and he's got his funeral director's voice on now. Oh yes, Diane, not to worry. We're going to get leaving shortly. I said, well, I'm going to get you to put a hold on that because and I said, we're not actually sure dad's dead. <laughs> he starts to laugh. And then he went, oh, I'm so sorry. And I went, no, we've been laughing here, Shane. It's okay. Because I said, my dad was a real joker. And I said, in life. And I said, I think this is his last joke that he's pulling on us. Like, oh, you only thought I was dead. I'm not dead. See? <laughs> and uh, and then, is- but because then it was within a few minutes and you knew when he passed because again quite quickly the body temperature um start you know was dropping and his yeah. color he lost all color and so he, did, uh, so, he so he was still alive or he... yeah i think so because he like like I said because when he actually when the spirit actually left um then the other things happened okay like really quickly if anybody because yeah. they don't teach you this stuff and i think they should because i think more and more people are asking to die at home they don't want to be in hospitals or wherever and and um i think they should put this out so people know what to expect but um anyway so no we passed very peacefully and uh then the the people showed up from the funeral home and we had made arrangements because they'll they tried to when i say they the establishment or the medical establishment tried to force me to put them in the hospital towards the end and i said no i gave him my word that unless there was something that he needed that i couldn't do for him he was dying here and there's nothing so i learned how to change catheters and do all those things and um so they uh said well you're gonna have to get a doctor to sign the death certificate and I said, I'll get one. Don't you worry about it. And I said, it's not your concern. So um, funny enough, it, his own doctor, who I'm still to this day angry at, I have to deal with that. Um, she, through her nurse, sent word that, well, she's only available on this day and that day and only between these hours and stuff. And I said, you can tell her for me. The last time I checked, the angel of death doesn't pre-book an appointment. He just shows up when he feels like it. So you tell her not to worry about it. So 
I called another doctor that used to be in here and he now worked in the emergency department at the hospital. And I told him the story and he said, no, that's ridiculous. He said, just have the hearse pull into the thing where the emergency is. He said, they'll call me out. I'll come out and pronounce them dead. And I said, thank you. So, but again, they'll do these things to make people think that there's some special thing or it's going to be horrendous or you're going to have to sign a lot of paperwork. It doesn't. And so they shouldn't, and you're distraught and you're emotionally upset at the yeah. time so easily influenced but hold your ground and just say nope this is his wishes this is what's going to happen because i said well you know really when you get to the hospital because that's i think i said to the one person i said i wouldn't be too worried about that we'll find a doctor and she goes oh how are you going to find a doctor and i said well i think we'll just take him to the hospital and then it seems to me that they've either got to pronounce them dead or admit them don't you and so they <laughs> That would be, that would, that would, yeah, that would make sense to me. Really? And again, I think that was God that gave me those words. Cause I, it's true. Like, you know, I said they got two choices and so that was, uh, um, anyway, it all got done, but no, that's good. It, it It's, it's because it's death. I mean, we're, we're laughing about this stuff, right? Yeah. And it's your dad. And I don't yep. mean any disrespect. And you know, no, I don't he, mean any disrespect. And I know you don't been, either. He's at peace. Like I have yeah. no, and he would have found this quite funny as well. Like he would have said, what? Um, but it just showed the ridiculousness of, you know, people and that they would even do it at that time when you're so under pressure, you're really emotional, you're distraught, you're at your last straw and they still try to bully people into making decisions they don't want to make and after the, the funeral home people told me they said you wouldn't believe Diane how many people that we've attended to that wanted to die at home but at the last minute were forced by nurses or doctors or whoever these people to to admit their person into the hospital and I said no I just didn't want that because then they go in the morgue and they like it's just and it's very impersonal and I said nope he wanted to die at home he's going to die at home and uh, oh, I forget what she said at one point it was something like uh, well something or people may come out or they'll just take him and I said I'm legally the executor I'm the uh, power of attorney I'm all of the things I need to be and I said beyond that I'm quite prepared to take my gun and sit at the end of the lane and just deal with this and she she didn't believe me whoops hang on I just that's all right. my battery I that's gotta right. plug in um but and I I there we go I said uh you know that um I've been up for three days without sleep. I said, I wouldn't even be convicted of murder at this point because I would be termed temporarily insane. <laughs> and so you know, they, I wouldn't recommend anybody come and try to do that. And, uh, but they, that's how ridiculous it just, um, uh, and, uh, but it, again, I think it was, it was definitely God that got me through that. Cause that was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life was to, help my dad die properly. And uh, again, society doesn't talk about that, but in this, where they've put all this effort into assisted dying, I'm like that with my dad, cause I, I actually had looked up, I had found a way that I could have, cause he was weak anyway, um, you know, hastened his demise. And, uh, and at one point he, when he was in so much pain and angst before he got the peace, he said to me, Diane, he was screaming, why won't you let me die? And I said, dad, it's not me. And he goes, well, what's going on? And I said, 
I said, I don't know, but I think that you haven't made your peace with God. And until you make your peace with God, you won't die. You might be here a year from now. He goes, oh, I don't want that. As well, <laughs> then you better make your peace with God because it's got nothing to do with me. This is between you and God. So, um, and you know, he kind of nodded like he, he got that. And but that's, he was still thinking about it. And then when it was did really, he know, did he know you, did he know that you believed in Christ? Yeah. So absolutely. And um, cause I always went to church and um, he, it wasn't that he didn't believe in them. He just hadn't been personally touched and um, it, you know, it was the way, and yet he would believe in certain things in the Bible. Like people would tell him he had learned, but it was really just his terrible upbringing and um, a lack of being told. It wasn't that he, you know, had any animosity or anything. He, he, he was like a blank slate that hadn't been written on. And um, so, and, but obviously the seeds were planted because he would have seen us and watched and, and he would come, like he would come to the church when we had our concerts or our, yeah. you know, special productions and all that stuff and, or special Sundays. Um, and so I think, you know, he, he had some, it wasn't that he was completely without uh, knowledge, but he didn't, he he hadn't grasped the depth of it yet and um which is understandable but i was just so thankful at the end that he did that and that god would you know and jesus would go to so much trouble to to bring him to bring him home and um and to do that and to do it in such a kind and loving way um and that that and then I'm so humbled that I was there and that he passed, you know, told me what had occurred. And then that he said the angel was still there standing in the corner and, and he looked and, and he was looking, right. I could tell he was looking at someone and, and he's going, can't you see him, Diane? And I go, I, I'm sorry, dad. I don't, but I don't doubt you for a moment that the angel's there. I just haven't been given the gift. He hasn't opened my eyes to be able to see him, That only you can see him right now. So, um, they uh like anybody that goes through that you could feel just like an energy or but a peace too it was funny so yeah it's been uh so that's why these other you know when i'm gone through and there has been lots of humps and bumps and people attack you and do all these things and you think same thing if god's brought me through all that stuff we can deal with this because you know it's just part of the course the other thing that goes into <laughs> that of course is that people I think really need to believe that there is a devil, there is evil, that um, they need to be aware of that and not consumed by it, but certainly aware that it exists in the world. Yeah. I've only ever met one or two truly evil people, but I have met them and they, they, the devil clearly owns them because they had no compassion and you can know when you look in their eyes it's like a dead a dead eye there's no life there's no spirit behind That's the sad. eye and um you know there's times when and i'll because people will say well why would god allow this and i said well maybe it was the devil did you ever think about that and there could be um things going on here that we don't understand but i said what i can tell you for sure like especially it's usually when a young child or somebody gets killed in a yeah. tragic way and I said, I can tell you without a doubt, those people are in heaven in God's arms and they felt no pain. They didn't suffer because God could intervene. So he can't stop your suffering. But that person did not suffer that 
they're then they're surrounded by love so um you know you can take com- confidence and that or comfort um but yeah most uh and like i said that the work I actually had a fellow one time when I was doing my John Howard work who felt that the devil was trying to possess him. And normally I would have not taken it too seriously. He was a young guy too, but he was telling me what he was telling me was something in me. It does and so again, I well, if you've ever gone and tried to find an exorcist, let me tell you, it's not <laughs> there's I have not. But I have not. But there are actually there I'm, are, and the churches, yeah. even one was an Anglican minister. I uh, attend now a Pentecostal church. I was raised in the United or Methodist church, but um, I found this one man and, and he said he actually was authorized by the Anglican church to do these things. And the things that I told him that this fellow was telling me, he said were all signs of possession. Like one night the guy woke up, he said in the middle of the night and the sheet was around his neck and twisting on its own. And, um, you know gonna smother him and uh uh different strange thing like he didn't see you know his head spinning around all that kind of stuff it was much not, uh, not, not was it the, the exorcist movie yeah no yeah, yeah although i wouldn't want to say you know but i don't think it's ever that obvious but um but i mean even jesus talked about the demons and driving yeah. out the demons and they all recognized and, him for who he was they all recognized yep. him for and they were their their first reaction was oh it was like this oh no we're done. It's him. Yeah. No, it's him. He's like, please don't torture us. What do you want? And the, the so my mom, uh, she's been a, re, a registered nurse. She's retired now. And uh, she worked in oncology. And she also worked with hospice home too, or hospice care. And uh, so I'm going back to when I said, it's amazing that we're talking this story about your dad and we're actually chuckling about it and stuff like that. Because there are people who don't have that kind of peace when they die. And uh, there are many nurses and medical professionals, and my mother is one of them, who have seen the opposite when somebody dies. And she said that there is a a person who just couldn't stop yelling and screaming, don't let them get me, don't let them get me. And then, yeah, you know, so it's kind of like that stuff. There's nothing going on externally that he wasn't being beaten. That was all internally, that was all going on inside that person. And, th- and that's why I say it's an amazing thing. Uh, this God that we have, because oh. we were talking about, you know, you, you've run into all kinds of people in law. I mean, you run into all kinds of people, both on both sides of, of, the, of the story and everywhere in between. And uh, there's, it's, it's just an amazing God who says, you have until your last breath to allow me to love you and bring you yep. home and then there's also yeah i'll leave it right there i'll leave it right i know there. it's just so overwhelming it really is so humbling oh, that's great. everything it's great and it's good because it keeps me humble like any time and and i always remind myself pretty well daily that everything i have and anything i've become is through the grace of god that um i can't take personal credit i was put into positions and there's expectations and um you know while you could get really a full head and think oh aren't i pretty something i've done all this right they thought <laughs> none of it none of it would have occurred i mean it's, there's been so many things in my life that if anybody said you know and when i was a child in her lifetime she's gonna do this everybody went yeah right you know, that's how, you know you're, um, you're absolutely right 
and that's the amazing thing about this life. That's the amazing yep. thing about this life is like, wow. When I, I was talking with some other people, it's kind of like, you see some, you know, these elementary schools will give kids like, here's what, here's a quiz on what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Cause this is what you like right now. Fourth grader, <laughs> you, yeah. know? you like cookies and Cheetos and cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be whatever. And yes. uh, all that crap doesn't matter. Cause it can change. Yep. And the worst and- things in life, like God can turn the, the nastiest of garbage into gold. I always say to him, let me always follow your will, not my will, because mine doesn't work out too good. <laughs> no, I think, and- you know, and then, you know what, here's the thing. It's like, as we mature, honest people, I think, recognize that. Because it's kind of like, whoa, maybe I wasn't all that I thought I was. maybe there was my maker taking care of me and allowing me to have this victory these things and i think of this i think of that i think of after christ was after christ was resurrected and peter and the disciples go out and they're fishing because they don't know what else to do they're lost right they're like we're gonna go fishing they're all like okay we're gonna go with you too and peter already just he just got done denying christ three times that was the last time he saw Christ. And mm. when they're fishing, Christ is on, Jesus is on the shore and he says, put your nets down. And they're like, we've been doing this and we caught nothing. But because they don't know it, John knows it's him. Peter doesn't know it's him. So they put the nets down and they're filled. Multiple nets are filled. So Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore and Jesus says to him, bring me some of the fish that you just caught and I'll make breakfast for you. Now, he didn't catch anything, right? He did not catch anything. He just confessed that I've been out fishing, catching nothing. But because he just took that one prompt and walked into it and did what that one prompt said, now he's getting the credit from his maker who gave him the gift. He's getting the credit for having listened, for having listened. Yeah. Having said, okay, you want me to do this? Uh, All right, I'll do it. It's just an amazing thing. And it's a forgiving God because right after that, Christ says to Peter, he's like, how do you, do you love me? And and Peter's breaking down three times because he knows it was three times he denied him. And then they went and talked somewhere else. And that restoration between he and Peter is private, not for documentation. And I heard you say something about, um, an experience, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was your dad or yours or, or um, somebody you knew or your mother earlier in the conversation. You said, yeah, it's not for me to know. It's personal. It's, per- it's for that person. Oh, and when then, uh, when the peace came over my father and the nurses said that's something right. has happened. That, that's what, what it was, was Diane. It? Yeah. And, that, and I, that just stuff... had a, I had that strong sense. Like I could have told him, but I, again, just going on intuition instincts at that time. And I just said it's personal uh, between my father and and God, and we'll just leave it at that. And that's cool. Um, so. You know, that's just like, see, it's all that. It's amazing. It's fantastic. It's love. And it's really cool at the same time. Cause yep. you got to see it. Oh, you know what I mean? You got to, you said, got to witness it. And it's like, yeah, well, it's not just for your dad. It's oh. whoever he is. They're seeing too. What and a those gift. nurses are in there. Those medical yep. professionals are in there witnessing all kinds of stuff. 
That's right. So I'm hoping that touched other hearts um, or their minds, even if it just makes them start to open their mind. Um, that's something because, uh, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm humbled to this day that God allowed me to be part of that, that Jesus did. So um, it, as hard as it was at the time, it was yeah. also one of the holiest things that I've ever experienced. And I think, you know, people are being denied that unnecessarily, that more people could, you know, but they also need more people to be brave enough to talk about, you know, this is what you may expect, you know, may happen and um, how you deal with it. God's going to tell you, like, listen to your heart. God will tell you. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it's one of those things I'll never forget. Certainly. Um, and is way more important than any more of the jobs or things that I've done. And I do just consider them jobs, but the things I remember with my employment is more like, so the big, man from Thunder Bay and being able to touch him and give him some peace and, and restore his faith in himself, which I'm sure restored his faith in God as well. And, or, you know, uh, a miner from Sudbury who'd been buried in a, in a collapse, a mine cave in. And his story was so poignant. That was one where I couldn't help it. I started, and he, cause he said, he started to cry and he goes, Oh, you have to excuse me. I'm just a stupid, um, weak man. And I said with my breaking up voice, you know, Mr. So-and-so you're anything, but or he said a coward or weak. And I said, you're anything, but that this is, uh, you know, and we had to take a break and then we came back and, um, but just to say to him, you know, no, that's, you're not a weak person, only a strong person and uh, could have lived through this. And he never lost his faith while he was down there either. So, but to be able, I, I always consider it such a uh, blessing that God has chosen to put me in places where you can touch people. And it's amazing. And the, it's amazing. He definitely works through people. He works through people. He works through people that are made in his image. All of us. Yep. And he, he knows what the big plan is. We have no idea. And to this day, when I'm in Belfast, um, they tell me that I'm still, I think, one of the only people that really goes between the two communities. And different people over there have said to me, you know, you should be getting a grant from the government because you've done more than any of these other programs. And I said, <laughs> oh, I wouldn't want a grant. Then they'd be all these strings and they'd make it very administrative. And I said, now I just go where God sends me. And, and, uh, that was also why when I was in the two communities and I was near what they call a peace line, which is not really a peace line. It's actually would be better called the keep the peace line because they try to keep the two sides uh, separated. And there were, I lived in the Catholic side. So there was the IRA on that side in it. But as soon as I crossed the M1, if I was walking, I walked everywhere because I couldn't drive over there because I, I tried it once and I learned, you know, nope, nope, I'm not meant to drive here. So, uh, then I'd get across and there'd be Protestant paramilitaries, which most people are unaware of, and they're actually way worse. But, um, and both sides were afraid that the other side was going to murder me. And I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm haven't been murdered. I'm quite safe. I said, part of that is that I'm a Canadian. As soon as I talk, they hear my accent. But I said, I can tell you that it's also because I never walk alone. I never doubt for a moment that Jesus walks with me when I'm walking through those areas. And, I never had an incident um, where I felt threatened. I had incidents where I'd get a funny feeling and think 
you need to get out of here like as quick as you can. I only had that happen a couple of times. And so I would get out of there and then I'd, I'd hear on the news or read the next day that things erupted and, you know, and it was sort of in that area and, and yeah. good thing I wasn't there. But um, yeah, I just, uh, and, but also over there, it was a test of, because uh, people would say, well, like, very few people would ask, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? The one, because they're very polite people, but um they have other ways of finding out without asking you directly. The Irish are very good at that. <laughs> and I would, and I, my answer to them was always the same. And because what baffled them is that I would go to both uh, denominations and said, these are all people of God and have lived through these, they, the horrendous things that they lived through and helped and worked. And, um, and I said, you know, I am, first of all, I, my theme always with them, I am number one, a Christian. I'm number two, I was raised in the Protestant faith, but I am number one, a Christian. And so I'm open to any Christian church that um, is around. I, I don't dismiss them, I, I would support them, but I have to pick one that helps me grow in my faith. I said, I'm very, that's very something I'm really sticky on. I won't go to a church just because I'm supposed to go or it's wealthy people go there, or whatever. Uh, no, I, I agree. I, I look at it the same way, the message, yep. If the message is not the right message, I, I can't, I, I, I've rounded churches like that and subjected myself to that stuff. And we end up fighting. My wife and I end up fighting. It was crazy. After every Sunday, it was like, why is this happening when we come back from church? And a lot of it had to do with the message. It was really odd. I'm not going to go yeah. into all that right now, but it was, I get what you're saying. Where you're feeding where you're being fed, because the church, we are the temple of God, each one of us. That, that's the new temple. It's yeah. not a building anymore. But if we're going to meet together as a group and worship together, I, I, uh, I am, yeah, I, I, I got to listen to that message. And, and if there's a mixture, if they're telling me I'm saved by grace, but then I got to adhere to the Ten Commandments, it's very subtle, but there's an adherent, that mixture of the mix. And I'm talking, I'm not talking civil law. I'm talking theologically, but yeah. those, those things, when they mix the old covenant with the new covenant, Ooh, that's a scripture is very clear about the consequences of doing that. Okay. That's right. I said, they're going to burn in hell and they, they are. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Diane, <laughs> I'm getting this thing that says your bandwidth is low. So. Oh, we're gonna wrap it up. It I don't want to lose you. Yet. I don't want to lose you before <laughs> before we sign no. off. <laughs> it goes. No, it's in good. It's good. I'm in right. a terrible area. They're supposedly working on it, but we'll see. All right. I said it's I should be a Russian spy because the government could never use satellites or anything to beam. Can you get me? Nope. I'm yep, not. It's coming in, me. but I'm gonna go ahead and close this off because I want. Ready? I'm going to All try right. to move a bit. This is the Conversation yep. Cannabis and Christianity podcast. And you know what? This is happening at the right time because it's a good one. I hope you all enjoyed this Justice of the Peace, Diane Ballum, Ontario, Canada. And I know that we, we've, been, we've been talking for a couple hours and it's barely scratched the surface of an amazing life. Love you all. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you next time.